It's the middle of the week, and we're right in the middle of another exciting show that covers everything Southern. Hello, happy Wednesday to you. I'm John Rawl, and this is our first of three hours of Southern goodness right here on Talk with a Southern Accent. Hope y'all are doing well. If you want to get in touch with the program, we welcome your feedback. Our number is 803-816-1170. That's how you can get in touch with y'all on today's y'all show. We're going to have a lot of great stuff coming your way. We're going to have information about a white alligator or a bunch of white alligators, frankly. Have you ever heard of such a thing? going to tell you about that and introduce you to a new word perhaps if you were not paying attention that day in biology we'll share that with you here in our headlines across the southeast also on tuesday the family of george floyd went to the white house to meet with president joe biden we'll tell you about that as well as how people across the southeast gathered on tuesday to remember the first anniversary of george floyd's death all that in our news headlines of the southeast then we have In addition to that, the passing of a Virginia political legend. That news just coming out, developing story. John Warner, longtime U.S. Senator from the Commonwealth of Virginia, has died. We'll tell you more about that in our headlines across the southeast and beyond. Also, the senator, speaking of politics, the new senator from the state of Tennessee is angry at the Biden administration about a migrant surge in the volunteer state. And I'm going to walk through the list of where migrants in the state of Tennessee, and likely most every other southern state, where they're coming from. What are the number one states for immigration into the southeast? We'll tell you about that. Also out of Louisiana, IHOP employees coming under fire as a gunshot, gunshots, plural, erupts. One person dies, but at IHOP in Baton Rouge, unfortunately, a, a... just an outburst of gunshots there, and we'll tell you about that. Also, in Georgia, one county in the state of Georgia telling people, stop calling here, stop calling 911 because of cicadas. And we'll tell you about that here on today's Y'all Show. Yeah, we got it all, a little bit of serious news and a little bit of goofy stuff all right here. And, and gosh, you need to hear about what a, a person who had been under the influence in the Charleston, South Carolina area did over the last couple of days. We'll, we'll have that all part of our headlines of today's Y'all Show. Then on some sports notes here this first hour, we'll tell you about the Big 12. We've been already announcing here on the show how much the ACC is giving out to its member institutions and what the SEC is doing to help out coming after coronavirus caused so many financial problems to our colleges of the Southeast. The Big 12, they just announced what they're going to do to their member institutions to help them out financially and we'll have that information plus an update from the saga of houston texans quarterback deshaun watson a legal update there that we'll tell you about as his case is not looking very good for him and it's not looking good that deshaun watson will be playing in the nfl this fall but still still a possibility we'll find out i think he wants to be traded first i'm not sure if there's going to be any takers in the trade also speaking of the nfl We'll let you know about how fans can attend training camp this season as teams will start reporting in just over two months. So all that right here on the Y'all Show. Plus, this hour we have our friend Jonathan Lifeite dropping back by with the ACC report. We'll let you know about the breakdown of college basketball transfers within the Atlantic Coast Conference and 
An update from Durham as the ACC baseball tournament underway. We'll get all that in our ACC report from 247sports.com insider Jonathan Lifeite right here in the first hour of y'all. Plus, we'll have a Kobe Bennett Southern accent on culture right here in hour number one. Hour two today. Get ready because we're going to be talking about murder. Our friend Jim Leach will be on. He's got a brand new book out called Murder's a Tough Business. And this former Tennessee Bureau of Investigations investigator, Jim Leach, will be on to talk about his new book, which chronicles 22 murders. And they're all different, and they're all amazing to read about. And Jim Leach will be in to talk about his new book as part of our book showcase in hour number two. We'll also hear in hour number two from a brand new author, at least a brand new author that is putting her name on the book this time and not a pen name. And this brand new author, you might have heard of. Her name is Stacy Abrams. Yeah, the same Stacy Abrams from Georgia. Maybe the most powerful political person in the country right now, to be honest with you. Stacy Abrams was recently on Late Night with Seth Meyers. And we're going to hear a portion of that interview. She's talking about her new book, While Justice Sleeps, a novel from Georgia's Stacy Abrams. We'll have a clip of that and tell you about some of the big bestsellers. In fact, Stacy's book is a number one bestseller right now, and that's why we're going to play a clip from Seth Meyers' Late Night Show in our second hour as we have a big spotlight on books. We also have in hour two a spotlight on Southern business. We'll tell you about some of the trends going on in the business world in hour two. Then also today in hour number three, we've got a really neat story. If you've got a car and you love your car, it might not be the best color. And the reason I say that is because we're going to talk about can the car color of your car make it difficult to sell when it's time to let it go? I would think that probably is true, but we will walk through a new article that explains just what your car color means when it comes time to get rid of it. And there's a lot of people selling their cars now because finding a new car is rather difficult. It's, it's very slim pickings out there in the car world. And we'll talk about car colors in our third hour of today's Y'all Show. So all that right here on Talk with a Southern Accent. Again, you can connect with us here at 803-816-1170. That is our number to call or text with anything you've got Southern-related. We welcome it here. We also welcome your emails, mail, M-A-I-L, mail at y'all.com. Reach out to us. We've got a complete staff ready to take your questions and comments and Forward it on, and we'll share it with you. All questions and comments are welcome here on the show that covers everything Southern. All right, let's get into headlines. And out of Virginia, breaking news here on this Wednesday, a former five-term a former five-term U.S. Senator from Virginia, John Warner, has died at the age of 94. He died at his home in Alexandria, according to his former chief of staff, Susan McGill. McGill said that, John Warner was frail, but it had a lot of spirit until his last days. His wife, Janine or Jeanne, and daughter, Virginia, that's a good name for your daughter when you're from Virginia, his daughter, Virginia, were by his side when he died of heart failure. No funeral arrangements have yet been announced. John Warner, a lawyer, retired from the law firm of Hogan Lavelle's in June 2020. He worked all the way till June 2020. Served as a senior advisor and former partner in the firm's government relations practice, Served in the U.S. Senate from 1979 until 2009. Then he retired 
In a letter announcing his retirement, John Warner expressed his gratitude to his constituents, the University of Virginia, and the military. In fact, John Warner was a World War II and Korean War veteran. He was one of the five World War II veterans serving in the Senate at the time of his retirement. He did not seek re-election in 2008. And as of this year, was the last Republican to have been a U.S. Senator from Virginia. I had forgot that he was a, a Republican, actually. It's so hard to think about a Republican in Virginia these days because, frankly, they're a a real endangered species. John Warner grew up in Washington, D.C., of all places. He attended St. Albans School, graduated from Woodrow Wilson High School in February 1945. Then he enlisted in the U.S. Navy. Shortly before his 18th birthday, he served as a petty officer third class in the U.S. Navy in World War II. Then he went on to Washington and Lee, where he was a member of Beta Theta Pi. Then he entered the University of Virginia Law School, then joined the Marine Corps in October 1950, went on to serve in Korea as a ground aircraft maintenance officer with the 1st Marine Aircraft Wing, then became a, a back to Virginia for an attorney, then into politics and more. He was Secretary of the Navy in the... Nixon administration. I did not realize that. Yes, he was Secretary of the Navy, then becomes U.S. Senator after Gerald Ford's defeat. He went on and entered politics and ended up winning in Virginia right before the Reagan years began. And now John Warner, the Virginia Senator, has passed away at the age of 94 at his home in Alexandria, Virginia. Fair winds and following seas, sir. A Black Hawk helicopter has crashed in Florida, and now four people are believed dead. This was a Black Hawk helicopter in Florida used for some firefighter training. Four people aboard when it crashed in a marsh Tuesday. Crash occurred at an airport in Leesburg, just north of Orlando. One occupant confirmed dead, but emergency responders there are not hopeful of finding any other survivors. According to the Leesburg Fire Rescue Department, the crash appears to be a total loss. At some point, according to Police Department Lieutenant Joe Iozzi, he says at some point some kind of a mechanical failure evidently occurred and the helicopter went into a tailspin and the tail separated from the main body of the aircraft. The tail went into the airport runway area, and the main body of the aircraft went back into a swampy, wooded area, and fire crews were conducting a rescue operation. The Leesburg Fire Rescue posted a photo online that showed black smoke rising from the crash site. The helicopter, described as a Black Hawk Sikorsky UH-60, being used for a training exercise when the crash occurred, according to FAA officials. So right now it looks like four people in training in the Orlando area have died when this Black Hawk helicopter crashed on Tuesday, and four people are believed dead in this developing story out of the Sunshine State. An officer from the South Haven, Mississippi Police Department has been shot in the arm, not considered to be life-threatening, but this followed a multi-state chase of an armed suspect. The officer from South Haven transported to the Memphis Regional One Health Medical Center and is expected to be just fine. But, yes, this officer shot 
suspect got away on foot when this happened at the intersection of Riverport Road and West Mallory Avenue in Memphis, according to news reports out of the Bluff City. Forty squad cars responded to the situation. The officer transported to the hospital, and this suspect, this person that was doing the shooting here, again, went away on foot. A witness said that they heard about six gunshots before police arrived, and the suspect got away, actually got captured in Arkansas across the Mississippi River from where this incident happened. The Memphis FBI and the Nashville's Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives are assisting with the investigation into the shooting incident. But, yeah, this suspect now in custody as the shooter had barricaded himself inside a home in the Palestine area of St. Francis County, Arkansas. And it was reported that the man shot at St. Francis County deputies earlier Tuesday, then led police on a pursuit in Alabama on Monday. And he, the pursuit had to be called off, and then he ended up being in in, uh, in North Mississippi, there in DeSoto County, when this thing happened, or an officer there. Very confusing. But this guy with uh, causing problems in Alabama, Mississippi, officer having to go to the hospital in, in, in Memphis, and now he was shooting in Palestine in St. Francis County, Arkansas. Again, in custody, thank goodness. More headlines from across the southeast. This is a sad story coming from the state of Florida. A 65-year-old Naples man was fatally struck by an SUV, SUV, and he was struck while teaching his son how to drive. The Florida Highway Patrol said a 34-year-old Colombian man was getting a driving lesson at a church parking lot. His father was standing outside the car teaching him how to park when the son accidentally stepped on the accelerator, drove over a parking block, and hit his father the 65-year-old Naples man taken to Lee Memorial Hospital where he later died. The son faces a felony charge of driving without a license, resulting in serious injury. But first of all, learning how to drive at 34 years old, a little bit unusual. Of course, this is a Colombian man who was doing the training but ended up fatally striking his father, 65-year-old Naples, Florida man, while learning how to drive. Sad story there from Florida. Now, national news here. A grand jury is seated for the next stage of the investigation into President Donald Trump's business dealings. The development signals that the Manhattan District Attorney's Office moving forward seeking charges as a result of its two-year investigation. And that investigation includes a lengthy legal battle to obtain Donald Trump's tax records. So, yeah, Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance Jr. conducting this wide-ranging investigation into a whole bunch of matters like hush money payments paid to women on Trump's behalf, property valuations, and employee compensation. Now, the president, or former president, contends that the investigation is a witch hunt, as he put out in a statement Tuesday. This is purely political and an affront to the almost 75 million voters who supported me in the presidential election, and it's being driven by highly partisan Democrat prosecutors. The attorney general there, or the prosecuting attorney, his office declined to comment. A new grand jury is the latest sign of increasing momentum that this criminal investigation into the former president and his company, the Trump Organization, is going to continue and be in the news and just my own thoughts on this there's a lot to say actually a lot to unpack here 
But I think we're going to continue to see Donald Trump being investigated and being under the watchful eye of the media as long as he's got a a 1% chance of running for office. I think this is all done to keep him from trying to run in 2024. That's just my opinion, but a lot of people feel the same way. And again, if he did something wrong and he's a criminal, put him in the jail. But we've seen in past Donald Trump type related stories that there was nothing as much as people want to come after him. He somehow either escapes the noose and doesn't have to serve the time for maybe his errors or maybe he's not guilty. Maybe he's not a criminal as some people have made him out to be. And right now he's out here saying this is all a partisan witch hunt, as he would say, as you would expect him to say. But right now in his native New York, the now Florida resident having to deal with a grand jury being seated as part of an investigation into his business dealings. Frankly, this is one of the reasons people like me supported Donald Trump back in 2016. And it was because Donald Trump, his whole business life had been under the eye of the New York media and they hated the guy. I know they put him on talk shows all the time and I know he was on magazine covers, but the bottom line here, this was a rich loudmouth guy and there is nothing a media outlet or even the general public loves more than to bring down the rich loudmouths of the world. You hate those kind of people, right? Well, he had had he was no stranger. This guy had 100% name recognition when he decided to run for president in 2016. So, you knew that there had to be at least one reporter, one gumshoe reporter out there that would have loved to bring down the candidacy of Donald Trump and it and it didn't happen. Maybe because Trump's either is is an angel has never done anything wrong. Or maybe he's just smarter than everybody else and knows how to not get caught. But but right now, there's been nothing to prove that he's as bad a guy as many have said he was. And then when he gets into office, you got the collusion story that went on for years and nothing was proven there. And he was not impeached for that or thrown out of office for that. And then other things happened during his presidency. Oh, chronicled and i'm not going to sit here and relive the trump presidency or the obama presidency or anything like that i'm just pointing out that for people like me we wanted someone to win in 2016 and donald trump because he was he was a loud mouth he probably wasn't going to back down whenever there was any bit of controversy or controversy directed toward him he was going to stand up we had seen too many conservative Republican type people who just crippled under the pressure and they crashed and burned. Nice guys, nice gals, but when the pressure was on, they just they just went wimped out for a be- lack of a better term. Donald Trump was likely going to not give up, and he didn't, and he won. And so here is another case of more incoming for Donald Trump. And how's he going to survive this? He survived everything else. I think he'll be all right. You never know. But again, if he was, if he's a bad guy, first of all, this should have been brought out and prosecuted before he ever became a presidential candidate. Maybe he's innocent. We'll find out. Developing story out of Manhattan. On Tuesday, the family of George Floyd's, they went to the White House. President Biden invited them to come there on the one-year anniversary of this North Carolina native and Texas 
grown, Texas-raised George Floyd, and this milestone moment was a little bit uh, lukewarm, if you will, because, frankly, a lot of the progressives of the world had thought by now, a year after Floyd's death, there would be all kinds of legislation passed on police and law enforcement reform. That's not yet happened. Now, there are measures that may get passed and maybe signed into law even in the coming days. But you saw President Biden there at the White House welcoming in members of the Floyd family. Although, from what I saw, I'm not sure that Floyd's girlfriend at the time who testified in his murder case, the murder of Floyd or the death of Floyd, I don't I don't remember seeing her there at the at, at the White House, but you did have there uh, the daughter of Floyd, Gianna, and the mother, Roxy Washington. And, of course, you had Benjamin Crump, the attorney, and uh, they got invited. They spent hours there. I heard Biden being interviewed talking about how when they all came in there, they wanted snacks, and so he had to help them out with a couple of snacks there when they were visiting the White House. There's supposed to be a really good grill in the basement of the White House. I don't know if they got anything from there. But, yeah, the Floyd family there at the White House. And uh, the photo I saw had uh, most of the members of the family and, of course, the attorney Crump out of Tallahassee with the Black Power fist picture you know, right there outside the Oval Office. So I'm, I'm not sure how that helps out. But, yeah, that's what I saw. Maybe you saw something different there. But also on Tuesday across the South, you had a lot of marches, demonstration, vigils, in recognition of the one-year anniversary of George Floyd's death. Now to Tennessee and the U.S. Senator, a fairly new senator in Tennessee. It's Bill Haggerty. He took over in January, the former seat held by Lamar Alexander. Haggerty is now ripping the president and the administration of Biden over migrants' surge into the volunteer state. As Haggerty said, they have a right to know. He was being interviewed Tuesday on the Fox News Network. And Haggerty says he's pushing hard for transparency on this, and the Biden administration is blocking us. So, yes, according to Senator Bill Haggerty, he's expressing concern for the safety of his home state as the Biden administration holds back clear reasoning on why illegal immigrants are being spotted traveling throughout Tennessee. Not necessarily being brought here by the government, but being passed through, if you will, on interstates like 40, and they're coming in illegal, according to Haggerty. He says that they don't know that they've been properly vetted, nor do we know what type of health crisis that they might present. That from Bill Haggerty of Tennessee. Now, we do have, courtesy of WATE-TV, a breakdown of just exactly where the biggest sources of immigrants to Tennessee come from. Nearly 14% of the United States population is composed of immigrants, but what about where are they coming from? What, what's going on right now? And according to an outlet called Stacker, they compiled a list of the biggest sources of immigrants to Tennessee using data from the U.S. Census Bureau. And this information is likely likely the same in every southern state. So I'll just list the last uh, top, or if you will, the top ten countries of which people are coming into Tennessee, which is pretty much going to be the same throughout the rest of the South. Canada. Canada right now has 8,500 
Canadians are residents of Tennessee. Canada. Vietnam. Vietnam is the number nine country of origin for immigrants in Tennessee with just over 8,700. El Salvador. El Salvador with 9,300 residents of Tennessee. And nationwide, 1.3 million El Salvadorans into the United States. The Philippines. Philippines, almost 10,000 residents of Tennessee are originally from the Philippines, according to this outlet. Egypt. Egypt has over 10,000 residents in Tennessee. And Egypt right now is a lot of people. I just met an Egyptian-American the other day. A great, great guy. Had a great business owner. And working hard, got a successful business, but he was born and raised in Egypt. And Egypt is the number six country into Tennessee. Honduras, Honduras, nearly 12,000 Hondurans in Tennessee right now, at least according to the U.S. Census. Probably a lot more that aren't being counted, frankly. China, China with around 13,000 in the state of Tennessee, likely in other states as well. Guatemala, Guatemala with over 15,000 in Tennessee listed on the U.S. Census, at least. Number two is India. India with over 22,000 residents of India now in Tennessee, according to the census. And then the number one country for immigration to Tennessee is Mexico. Mexico with a lot more than any other country. Tennessee, I just told you, India was number two with 22,000. Mexico, 91,000. 91,000. And I told you that the number 10 country into the United States was another country that straddled the U.S. border, Canada. Big difference between 8,500 in Canada into Tennessee, and then for Mexico, 91,000. Yeah, pretty big difference there. A IHOP employee and other employees of this IHOP at in Baton Rouge came under a hail of gunfire. One person was killed. The suspect's car had been stolen in an outbreak of violence in Baton Rouge. On Tuesday, gunfire erupting at the restaurant along Segan Lane and the East Baton Sheriff's Office, East Baton Rouge Sheriff's Office, investigating as an IHOP employee dead and another injured after two masked gunmen popped out of a stolen vehicle and fired at them before fleeing the IHOP. Yeah, unfortunately, IHOP employees coming under fire. One killed in Baton Rouge on Tuesday. I really feel horrible for this. The suspect's vehicle later found burning in a neighborhood and reported been stolen from Ascension Parish in Louisiana. But a, a really devastating story of IHOP employees coming under fire, one losing their life. The governor of Louisiana, John Bell Edwards, criticizing police after footage came out last week of the deadly arrest of a black man from a few years back and now Governor Edwards telling reporters at the Baton Rouge State Capitol that I wouldn't have had, I wouldn't have been disturbed had I thought it was professional, but I thought those officers had performed as they should. They did not, according to the governor of Louisiana. He added, they don't represent what we aspire to in the state of Louisiana at the Louisiana State Police, especially once Mr. Green was shot, was not just in custody, but was restrained. That from John Bell Edwards. The 49-year-old man was killed in the Monroe, Louisiana area. And this com- this comes out after video obtained by the Associated Press was released 
and it had been previously unreleased video, body cam footage, showing that Louisiana State Highway Troopers converged on the suspect, Mr. Green's car, outside Monroe after a high-speed chase, and they repeatedly jolted the 49-year-old man with stun guns, putting him in a chokehold, and then punched him in the head, dragging him also by his ankle shackles. He died in custody, and this is an ongoing story that is likely going to get uglier before it gets better. We'll take a break. More y'all coming up after this break. A quick sports update. And also before the hour is up, Jonathan Lifite will be on. Jonathan is with the 247sports.com network. and They cover all things ACC at 247sports. And Jonathan's going to be on with an ACC update of what is going on in the Atlantic Coast Conference. We'll tell you about some basketball news out of the ACC as we've got a lot of transfers Right now in college basketball, Jonathan will weigh in on that, that and a whole lot more, including a little ACC baseball update as the ACC baseball tournament taking place right now in Durham. This is Y'all Talk With a Southern Accent. How about you pokes out of Stillwater? Garth Brooks, you. This is the Y'all Show. This is a sports update here on this Wednesday edition of Talking About the Southeast. And speaking of the Oklahoma State Cowboys and the Big 12 Conference, the conference is now distributing about $345 million of revenue to its 10 member institutions. This is the second year in a row that figure has been lower because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Each Big 12 school is going to get about $34.5 million for the 2020-2021 fiscal year. That's down from about $37 million announced at this time last year when COVID-19 numbers were on the rise around the country. So you have the rise, and that affected the NCAA as it had to cancel the men's and women's basketball tournaments in 2020. The commissioner of the Big 12 is Bob Bowlesby, and he said at the end of two days of league board meetings held virtually that overall revenue was about $50 million short of what it had been expected before COVID-19. But considering the uncertainty of things when that current school year began last fall before widespread vaccinations and lowered infection rate, things could definitely have been a lot worse. And Bob, you're absolutely right on that. Yes, Bowlesby also acknowledged there are still variables and knowns. He anticipates Big 12 revenue distribution pushing above $40 million per each school next year. So Big 12 
with their baseball tournament going on right now, maybe getting a little bit more money in the coffers with that. But they're a little short of what we've seen and reported on from the SEC as well as the ACC in recent days in terms of the revenue distribution to the NFL. Houston Texans quarterback, former Clemson Tiger quarterback, former Gainesville High School Red Elephant quarterback Deshaun Watson is not scheduled to be deposed in a case against him until early in 2022 as he's entered into discovery, which could play out well for him in the 2021 regular season with deposition set to begin not until September. Now, there's 22 women who are suing this Houston Texans quarterback for alleged sexual assault, and they would be deposed before Watson, who's not scheduled until, again, early in 2022. That, according to Watson's attorney, Rusty Harden. According to the docket for this case, Watson can't be deposed until at least February 22nd of 2022, and that's definitely after whatever team that Watson might be playing for this fall would be playing in a Super Bowl if they were to get that far. Now, Rusty Harden, his attorney, reiterated on Tuesday that Watson is not currently in settlement discussions with the women suing him, and Watson maintains he wants any settlement amounts to be public, although the two sides could mediate in confidentiality, which is customary there. Again, this guy, the quarterback, NFL star, is alleged to have had sexual misconduct or or things along those lines with 22 women when they went in to give him massages. And it's been a, a little bit of an uncomfortable story to report. Now, Tony Busby is the attorney representing the 22 women who filed civil lawsuits against Washington, and he, he's attempted to settle the case on several occasions. Now, Busby later denied that claim in an Instagram post, so... It could it could get criminal, but right now it looks like they're possibly going to try to do this out of court, which bodes well for Deshaun Watson if he wants to be able to play football for the NFL here in 2021 or if he wants to have a career period beyond this season, whether he's with a new team or not. Now, other news coming out of the NFL. The league says that fans will be able to attend training camps across the NFL in the forthcoming spring or summer camps when teams start reporting mid to late july getting ready for maybe some might even not report till early august i don't know the complete breakdown for each nfl franchise but yes fans now are being able or given the green light if you will to come in if they want to and see their favorite team practicing in these hot summer months teams will be permitted to host fans at training camps subject to state and local guidelines after keeping their doors closed during the pandemic-influenced camps of 2020. Also, all but two teams have now received approval from state and local governments to open their stadiums at full capacity when the NFL games, the preseason and regular season games, get underway in a few months. Beyond those 28 stadiums that have already had approval, the league also Feels good about the path for the Indianapolis Colts and Denver Broncos who are still working with their local contacts to receive final authorization. So I guess those are the at least two teams that aren't exactly in the clear yet of having 100% capacity. The NFL-wide season ticket renewal rate has been about 90% fueled by a surge in the 10 days since the league announced its 2021 schedule. Over that period, NFL ticket sales for the new year have run at an 83% higher rate than they did in the same time frame 
after the 2019 schedule release. So fans ready to get back into these stadiums and pull for their teams. And if you're an NFL fan, it looks like most every team in the league is going to be back, kind of back at full steam ahead. That's welcome news. Now, Major League Baseball slowly getting there. If they're not at full capacity, most of the teams are working their way to that. And so let's give you an update on what happened on the diamond. On Tuesday in MLB, the Cubs outlasted the Pirates 4-3. The Phillies were down at Miami, and they were able to beat the Marlins 2-0, blanking them in that game. The Reds with a 2-0 win over the Marlins. I'm sorry, the Reds with a 2-1 victory over the Nationals. Blue Jays in an AL East battle with the Yanks, and they get the 6-2 victory there in the Bronx. Atlanta went to Fenway, and in this battle of the old Boston Braves versus the Boston Red Sox, the Bravos, the oldest team and oldest continuously run team in Major League Baseball back in their city that they spent about 75 years in, they get the victory in Beantown 3-1 on Tuesday. Cleveland defeated the Detroit Tigers 4-1, Mets over the Rockies 3-1, Royals winning alongside the Gulf Coast down at Tampa 2-1, down at St. Pete, frankly, 2-1 over the Rays on Tuesday. The Twins over the Orioles 7-4. Padres with the 7-1 win over Milwaukee, and the Dodgers got the 9-2 interleague win over the Houston Astros. The Sacks, Chicago with the 8-3 victory over the Cardinals. Chicago and Tony La Russa continue to be one of the best stories of this 2021 season. The L.A. Angels, 11-5 winners over the Rangers. Mariners with the 4-3 victory over the Oakland A's. And finally, the Giants, one of the surprises of this year. The Giants with the win in the desert over the D-backs, blanking them 8-0 on the diamond here on this Wednesday. If you want to tune in, you'll have a chance to see some good Major League Baseball action starting early today. Minnesota and the Baltimore Orioles with the 110 Eastern first pitch there. As you've got Jorge Lopez on the mound for the O's and Michael Panetta on the mound for the home standing twins there at Target Field. Another early game, the Chicago White Sox will put Carlos Rodon on the mound against John Gant and the St. Louis Cardinals. That is a 110 Southsiders time there in Chicago. Another early game, Oakland will be hosting the Mariners in an early game there in Oakland Coliseum. Rangers and Angels with the mid afternoon game alongside the freeway in Anaheim. The Cubs with a match against the Pirates here this afternoon. You've got the Phillies and Marlins suiting up Reds, Nationals, Blue Jays at Yankees. The Braves and Red Sox continue their series at Fenway here on this Wednesday evening. Indians and Tigers will be at Detroit's Comerica Park for an evening matchup. The Rockies and Mets at City Field. Royals and Rays will be at Tropicana Astros hosting the Dodgers, Padres at Brewers, the Giants, and the Diamondbacks from Chaseville in Phoenix. And that's a look at what's on tap for Major League Baseball here on this Wednesday. What's on tap on the Y'all Show is an ACC report from Jonathan Lifite. That is coming up next. Don't miss out on the fun. We'll tell you about ACC basketball, and we'll also let you know about what's going on with the ACC baseball. We'll tell you about ACC basketball, and we'll also give you the latest from the ACC baseball tournament that's taking place right now in Durham and the handful of teams in the Atlantic Coast Conference that have a chance at postseason we'll give you an update on what's going on there with teams like Florida State Georgia Tech and even Notre Dame which has been the best team in the Atlantic Coast Conference here in the 2021 season 
All that's coming up, our ACC report on this, the show that's all about the South. This is y'all. Stay with us. All right, we're back on our y'all show talking now all things Atlantic Coast Conference. We've got Jonathan Lifeite on with us right now as he is here to talk about what's going on with the ACC. And Jonathan, my apologies. Did I mess up here? I think I messed up big time. I've been telling people for weeks now the ACC baseball championship in Durham, North Carolina, but according to what I'm seeing here, it's in Charlotte at the Knights place there in downtown Charlotte. So where in North Carolina is this thing? It, it is in Charlotte. Uh, they actually had a, a scheduling issue with, with Durham, so they had to move it to Charlotte. Um, I believe that was, uh, it was a schedule to start last year, but of course that never happened. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for letting us know that. And so, yeah, if you make plans to go to Durham, hey, you can go to the Queen City now for the ACC baseball tournament. Things got underway on Tuesday. This tournament, unlike a lot of the other conferences, they do things a little bit different with the way they have these pools set up. And on Tuesday, you saw Louisville getting a rare win. I say that jokingly. Louisville with the 15-10 victory against Clemson there at the ACC baseball championship. Virginia gets the victory over their home state foe. The Hokies fall to the Cavaliers 3-2 to on Tuesday. And then in, I think, the nightcap, the Tar Heels of North Carolina fall to the Pitt Panthers in action on Tuesday. Here on this Wednesday in the ACC Baseball Championship, you got Duke and Florida, the early game, followed by Virginia Tech and the arguably best team in the ACC this year, Notre Dame. That's a mid-afternoon action that you can see on various television outlets. And then Clemson and Georgia Tech, the nightcap from Charlotte, and that's the way it's set up. So, Jonathan, your thoughts on what's going on here early in the ACC Baseball Tournament Championship? Yeah, it's, uh, I, I don't think we've seen any surprises. You know, uh, you know, if you're, if you're you know, a team like uh, Georgia Tech and you like to see uh, the two teams you've got to play, both have to go deep into their bullpen. Um, but, you know, all in all, I don't think we've seen, you know, too, much, too, too many surprises. The interesting thing, as always, when it comes to this particular one, is um, if you're the if, if you're the upper seed in your pod, you really have to just you know hope that everybody if everybody goes one and one, then then good you're good to advance. So it's it's not all that necessarily hard to do. Um, so uh, but then and then they'll move to the to the kind of the semifinals and finals um, beyond that. So um, it it's a it's an interesting kind of way to set it up. But uh, I also think it kind of protects the teams going into the NCAA tournament, which is exactly what it was kind of designed to do based, you know, based on years past. And as I mentioned, this action today includes Duke and FSU, Florida, the Virginia Tech Hokies back on the diamond against Notre Dame, Clemson, Georgia Tech. Then you've got some teams who have not even played yet and won't play until Thursday, teams like 
Miami will not be playing until Thursday. And NC State's also not scheduled to play until on Thursday night at 7 Eastern. Yeah, I mean, it's just the nature of how it's how it's set up. You're only playing two games in your pod, um, and the pods are set up to go four days. You get three games every day. So, you know, somebody's got to wait, and, uh, and, you know, these are the teams that that'll, that'll end up doing that. Jonathan, let's switch over to a little ACC basketball with the transfer portal going on. And frankly, a lot of people are now starting to think it's maybe not the best idea to have this thing because it's very, very confusing, to put it lightly. But you've had a lot of teams with incoming and outgoing players as well. And let's talk about some of the newcomers already on these teams for the ACC, starting with Clemson, as they expected to have the newcomers coming in from South Florida, David Collins, also a newcomer, a recruit coming in, Joshua Beadle, not I don't think out of the transfer portal. Those are some of the guys, but they are losing players from last year's team, guys like Amir Sims, who averaged 13.4 points per game. That's Clemson. Duke is having team or players like Matthew Hurt leave the program, who had over 18 points per game last year. As far as newcomers, for the Blue Devils, they've got a guy, Theo John, coming in from Marquette and another player who was at Davidson arriving at the program. FSU, they have a transfer in from Houston, Caleb Mills. Also a Kentucky defection, Cameron Fletcher. He averaged 1.7 points per game for the Big Blue Nation. Now he's going to be playing for FSU. Jonathan, your thoughts on all this transfer portal stuff when it comes to college basketball? Well, I mean, to me, it's a uh, it's a case of kind of giving some of the power back to the to the players a little bit. You know, coaches will recruit them, tell them certain things, and then they get them in there, and then they don't live up to it. And you know, in some cases, you find out the situation isn't that great for a particular student. So, I kind of that you know, I know some people don't like it. I kind of like it because I think it's it's great for the students to find the place that they want to go to. The downside of it is is you might see coaches that'll start to do things like tampering with, you know, other players at other programs, trying to convince them to transfer into that to where they're at, and that that, that that's certainly a, a downside of it. But by and large, I'm, I kind of like the the whole idea of it a little bit for, from a player's perspective. And you're even seeing some players go from one ACC program to another. Matt Cross, he was for a basketball player for the Miami Hurricanes, averaging just under seven points per game. He's now going to be on the Louisville Cardinals roster in the forthcoming season. So a lot, a lot of people talking about the transfer portal. You say you're not necessarily against it right now. But, Jonathan, you got to admit, it's a little confusing. Well, it certainly, uh, it certainly is. You know, with with all the changes that go on, it can certainly it, it can confuse get confusing as to what's going on. And it certainly throws a monkey wrench into things. But you know, it, it also means that you know the coaches and the players and the programs they've got to do a better job of treating their players well, or, or the guys going to leave. And and I think you know that's for players uh, players benefit as well. Jonathan, before we get out of here with you, anything football related that we need to pass along from the ACC? Uh, they are having their, uh, the uh, football media kickoff will be on July 21st and 22nd in Charlotte. They're actually planning to do it in person. So, uh, that's coming up. I think we mentioned that previously. Um, but other than that, um, they also made some announcements. If you check in with the, uh, with the ACC, they made some announcements on some game times. So I think all the game times are getting close to being set for the first two weeks of the season. So, 
uh, all in all, that's a you know that's a good thing. It makes me it makes me happy to know uh, we're getting closer. Yeah, we are getting closer. We're about to turn the calendar over to the month of June, Jonathan. Hey, thank you very much. Happy Memorial Day weekend to you, sir. And we'll see you back here on next week's Y'all Show. Sounds good. Talk to you guys. Have a great Memorial Day. All right. Jonathan Leifite of 247sports.com. We'll take this break. Come right back with a southern accent from Kobe Bennett. Accent. Here's an accent on the South from y'all.com. I'm Kobe Bennett. In Menifee County, Kentucky, you can take a tour of a flooded, abandoned mine thanks to SUP Kentucky, an adventure company that offers tours throughout the state via stand-up paddle boards and kayaks. Now, the Red River Gorge Underground Cavern Glow Tours take kayakers through an abandoned limestone mine illuminated by the glow of multicolored underwater LED lights. The kayaks used in the tour offer a one-of-a-kind experience because they're clear, so one only needs to look down to see all the natural wonders occurring beneath them, such as the rainbow trout that often follow the tour. Single or double kayaks are available, and the tour is limited to six people at a time. Some other cool sights at the SUP Kentucky Underground Cavern Glow Tour include an underground waterfall and possibly some bats fluttering by. The tour lasts an hour, and SUP Kentucky will document it for you with photos. The tour costs $75 a person and $25 for children. Southern fun and more at y'all.com. Did he just say something about bats? Yeah, I think he did. And uh, I'm not going to be signing up for that tour anytime soon. Hey, this is y'all. We have wrapped up our first hour of Talk with a Southern Accent. Hang on. Hour two is headed your way. Author Jim Leach will be in talking about his hot new read, Murder's a Tough Business. Oh, this former TBI investigator will be on talking about the 22 cases of murder that he's got chronicled in Murder's a Tough Business. Author Jim Leach, part of our Southern Book Spotlight here in the second hour. Plus, we'll be hearing from the number one author in the world right now, at least on the New York Times bestseller list, Stacey Abrams. She's penned the book While Justice Sleeps, a novel. We'll hear a clip from her. All that in hour two. Talk with a southern accent. We accentuate the South here on y'all. I'm John Rawl, General John Rawl, CSA, Certified Southern American. And all you fellow CSAs out there, hope y'all doing well on this Wednesday, middle of the work week edition. We got another fantastic hour of Southern dialogue coming your way. We've got a look at headlines from around the land. We'll tell you about white alligators in South Carolina. That's not some kind of new sports team there in the Palmetto State. No, that's something that they're finding there. Also in Florida, the governor signing a bill to allow sports betting on Seminole land. Not Florida State Seminole, no, on Seminole Indian land there in the Sunshine State. Also, McDonald's paying big money to get workers these days. We'll tell you about that. Plus, in the low country of SC, a man drunk text. Have you ever drunk tested, texted? Well, a man's done that, and he did it to a, an aquarium there in the Charleston area. What in the heck is going on in 843? 
We'll have all that right here on the Y'all Show in the second hour of Headlines. Plus, also in the second hour of our Wednesday show, we've got a look at Southern business headlines from across the Southeast that we'll get to. So don't miss out on what's going on business-wise in the land of business in the South, also known as the land of cotton. We'll have info on that. Plus, we also, in the second hour, have Jim Leach, author of the hot new book, Murders a Tough Business. And I mean hot. And a little bit scary if you're looking for a book that'll have you thinking and have you getting everybody together at the dinner table discussing the 22 cases that Jim Leach has outlined in his book. You're going to want to stick around for our conversation with this author who has now penned this fourth book of his, Murders a Tough Business, the former Tennessee Bureau of Investigations investigator and a current radio host. Jim Leach on later this hour is a Southern author spotlight. Also, we have a listing of speaking of books, the top bestsellers on the New York Times list right now. And one of those names at number one is Stacey Abrams. Yeah, the lady who was in the Georgia House of Representatives who ran for governor and lost and has made a career out of the last five years or so going around talking about voter suppression. She even talks about voter suppression when she's on Late Night with Seth Myers, In fact, you're going to hear her talking about voter suppression while she's also talking about her number one book, While Justice Sleeps, a novel from Stacey Abrams, who we just found out the other day that before becoming a popular political person, Stacey Abrams was actually a romance novelist writing under a pen name. But now... She's got her name right front and center. Her real name, Stacey Abrams, on this book, which is number one, While Justice Sleeps a Novel. We'll hear a clip of that later this hour as our feature on authors and books gets into high gear in this second hour of Y'all Talk with a Southern Accent. Also coming your way in this hour or on this Wednesday show of Y'all in the third hour, we've got more headlines and more more sports news. And also, can the choice of of color of your car how big of a difference can that be when you're trying to sell it we'll discuss that on this wednesday y'all show so stick around for the fun it's going to be oh so good and we appreciate you being along with us 803-816-1170 is the way to get in touch with us here at y'all text or call that number and calls are welcome our phone lines are open right now so 803-816-1170 is how you can get in touch with y'all Okay, looking at some headlines from this world right now in the southeast and the news breaking on this Wednesday morning of the passing of longtime U.S. Senator from Virginia, John Warner. He died in the Alexandria, Virginia area and in his home there at the age of 94. It was announced that he died on Tuesday. His daughter, who's named Virginia, announcing that. John Warner was a World War II Navy veteran who went on to be in the Korean War as a Marine. He was a sailor, a senator, a statesman, and a gentleman. That, according to the current governor of Virginia, Ralph Northam, he says that Virginia and America have lost a giant, and John Warner spent his life in public service. That he did. He also was an attorney and a graduate undergrad degree in Virginia from... Washington and Lee, WNL, there in Lexington, Virginia, is where he went to his undergrad. Then he went to the University of Virginia Law School, where he ended up becoming involved in the 
law career and politics. He was even the Secretary of Navy in the 1970s after he had been both a sailor as well as a Marine later in his life. But John Warner, uh, uh, kind of a consummate Southerner there, born in Washington, D.C., but had been an attorney all the way up until last year for the law firm of Hogan Lavelle's and this statesman, Senator from Virginia from 1979 until 2009. Mark Warner actually took over his seat in the U.S. Senate, and Warner still has that. Warner, a long-time senator now, now 12 years, Warner has been in that U.S. Senate seat from the Commonwealth of Virginia. But John William Warner III, Born in 1927, now passing away in the Washington, D.C. area. And how about this? Among his many things in his bio, John Warner was awarded the Knight Commander of the Order of the British Empire. Pretty neat. He was also a retired captain in the United States Marine Corps and was a petty officer third class while serving in the Navy in World War II. We remember the public service and life of Senator John Warner of the Commonwealth of Virginia. North of Orlando on Tuesday, a Black Hawk helicopter being used for some firefighting training crashed. Four people now believed to have died in that crash, and that happened at the airport in Leesburg, Florida, roughly 50 miles northwest of Orlando. The authorities there confirming one person dead on the ground but responders were not hopeful of finding any other survivors from this Black Hawk helicopter. It was a Black Hawk Sikorsky UH-60 being used for training exercises there in Leesburg, and these were firefighting-related exercises and emergency crews searching and FAA investigating, but it looks like four people dead now after this Black Hawk goes down in the Sunshine State. A man in South Haven, Mississippi, or in the South Haven, Mississippi area, really even into the Shelby County, Tennessee area, a man shoots at a Memphis area police officer, and this South Haven police officer is shot in the arm. Not life-threatening injuries, thankfully. Man, the officer rushed to Regional One Health Medical Center in Memphis. But this suspect had been on a multi-state chase as he got into a, a dust-up with authorities in Arkansas. He actually got into a, a pursuit in Alabama, of which it was a pursuit that the law enforcement in Alabama ended up backing off and letting this guy get away from him. But he'd also, he also he shot at a St. Francis County, Arkansas deputy on Tuesday before getting over across the Mississippi River into Mississippi and I guess into Memphis as well. And now this man causing so many problems but I think he's under, uh, he's been arrested. And as I said, the officer from the South Haven Police Department looks like it's going to be okay. But a scary scene involving four states, actually, <laughs> on Tuesday. And and uh, more drama in the Memphis area, just what they, what they needed. A sad story coming from southwest Florida. A 34-year-old Colombian man was getting a driving lesson from his father at a church parking lot. And according to the Florida Highway Patrol, while his father, a 65-year-old man from Naples, Florida, 
was standing outside the car that was being used to teach him, teaching this guy how to park. The man, the son, accidentally stepped on the accelerator and drove over his father in the parking lot and killed the 65-year-old Florida man when his the SUV fatally struck him while watching his son learn how to park in a church parking lot. 65-year-old taken to Lee Memorial Hospital where he died. His son now faces a felony charge of driving without a license resulting in a serious injury. But a really nice, a really bad story there in a really nice part of the world, southwest Florida, and the death of a father while his son was learning to drive. President Biden welcomed in the family of George Floyd to the White House on Tuesday. You saw George Floyd's mother there, and she was mother is Roxy Washington, joined by his daughter and others, including the attorney that represented him after he was killed, Benjamin Crump, as together they joined President Biden at the Oval Office, spent several hours there on the one-year anniversary of George Floyd's death to the I guess you could say through the hands of the Minneapolis Police Department. Also on Tuesday, to mark the one-year anniversary of Floyd's death, you saw protests and or vigils and or marches across the country, but even in the South. I know Huntsville, Alabama had a big demonstration, and really other cities had some kind of remembrance of George Floyd throughout the country on Tuesday. Bill Haggerty is the U.S. Senator from Tennessee. He's now criticizing the Biden-Harris administration over the migrant surge in his state. As people are, are the uptick is big time in the volunteer state, people passing through, maybe on their way to other states, but a lot of them end up settling in the state of Tennessee. And, and Senator Haggerty is essentially calling out the administration, wanting to know we have a right to know who these people are, where they're coming from. Have they been vetted? Have they been vaccinated? Reasonable questions. Senator Bill Haggerty, who I think is set to go. I don't think he's been yet. He's supposed to go down to Central America any day now and check in on migration-related issues. Louisiana, a couple of gunshots erupt at an IHOP, and unfortunately in Baton Rouge, one IHOP employee killed under this hail of gunfire. This happened around lunchtime on Tuesday. IHOP employee dead. Another injured after two masked gunmen popped out of a stolen vehicle and fired at them before fleeing the scene. Gunfire erupting at this IHOP along Segan Lane, according to the East Baton Rouge Sheriff's Office. Two IHOP employees taking a smoke break outside the restaurant when two masked assailants pulled up in a stolen car, got out, and opened fire. One of the employees killed during this outburst of bullets. Other employee injured and is in stable condition, according to the East Baton Rouge Sheriff's Office. The suspect's vehicle later found in the neighborhood. It had been reportedly stolen from Ascension Parish right there in the Baton Rouge area. But all that stealing a car and i'm looking at the car it looks like a little small import car probably not worth more than twenty thousand dollars and and they, they stole the car and killed at least one person because of that unbelievable unbelievable also out of baton rouge on tuesday 
Governor John Bell Edwards is denouncing the 2019 arrest of Ronald Green, an arrest that last week we saw the video released of where the video shows a different side of the story from what was reported when Green was arrested in 2019 in the Monroe area following a lengthy chase. Video showing officers dragging him, tasing him several times. Governor John Bell Edwards telling reporters at the state capitol Tuesday, quote, I wouldn't have been disturbed had I thought it was professional, but I thought those professor, those officers had performed as they should. They did not. They don't represent what we aspire to in the state of Louisiana at the Louisiana State Police, especially one once Mr. Green was not just in custody but was restrained. And Green again dying, the 49-year-old unarmed man dying after stun guns put him the officer put him in a chokehold, punched him in the head, and dragged him by ankle shackles, according to the video that the Association Associated Press obtained just last week. That out of Louisiana. In Jackson, Mississippi, a firefighter is now being praised for battling a fire at his own home. Yes, in Mississippi's capital city, the man had a fire outbreak at his own home. Jackson Fire Department Lieutenant Solomon Forbes fought the fire at his home. He was in shock when his own home went up in flames. Forbes was inside with two of his children when someone told him the apartment next to his was burning. Forbes sprung into action, making sure his family and all neighbors evacuated. Then he suited up right out of his doorstep, you know, just didn't have to go down to the fire department for this one, suited up to help his fellow Jackson, Mississippi firefighters put out the blaze. And as he said, once I put my turnouts on, I don't know what a turnout is. I apologize, firefighters. I need to look that up. Once I put my turnouts on, I tried to enter the building with a fire extinguisher, but it was so intense and so hot. Once I backed out, my brothers pulled up and I assisted them with the fire. Fellow firefighters are praising Lieutenant Forbes for leadership and bravery. They said he came out of his apartment, saw the building on fire, and put on his turnouts. That's the title of a real hero. Great job there, Jackson, Mississippi Fire Department, Lieutenant Solomon Forbes, for helping try to save lives and save property there in Jackson, Mississippi. Now, what is a turnout? I didn't learn that this uh, term growing up in my learning Firefighter turnouts. Turnouts, uh, it must be the gear they use. Fire Dex turnout gear is made with the highest quality detail in the industry. Turnouts. Yeah. Okay, so we've learned what a turnout is here. And let me take this moment to thank all of our brave firefighters across the southeast. Our firefighters, EMTs, of course, law enforcement. But the firefighters often don't get as much praise as law enforcement, as police officers. And they should. These these guys and gals go out every day, put their neck on the line, and honestly, sometimes what they do may not sound that brave, but it has lifelong side effects, not just mental. I didn't realize how dangerous firefighting was years down the road in terms of cancer the, the, the fumes that a lot of these firefighters have to d- deal with uh, and breathe in. 
and it might take 5, 10, 20 years, but the danger on the job there from just inhaling can be deadly. And, of course, what they have to do with rushing into buildings, going to wreck scenes, the the blood, the death, it's it's a tough business. And so we th- want to thank all of our firefighters across the southeast here on this y'all show. Thank you for what you do. And and we back the red and we back the blue also right here on y'all talk with a southern accent. To Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis is signing a bill for Seminole sports betting in the state of Florida. The Seminole tribe would be able to operate sports betting and add roulette and craps to its casinos. And Florida would potentially receive $20 billion in money over the next 30 years. I think they probably could get a little more if they wanted to. Governor Ron DeSantis worked out the gambling compact with the tribe last month, and the Florida House and Senate approved the deal last week. It still needs to be approved by the U.S. Department of the Interior, which oversees tribal gambling operations, and even lawmakers supporting the deal expect legal challenges. But another case of sports betting, this time in Florida, this time thanks to the Seminole tribe, and they would be able to operate sports betting and adding these roulette and craps tables to their casinos. And the state would receive $20 billion over 30 years as a result of this. And now Florida likely to join other states who have been pro sports betting states like Tennessee and Mississippi that have gotten into the game in the last two to three years. Now to South Carolina, and we've got a new word for y'all. It's Lucism. Have you heard of that word? L E U C I S M. Lucism. It is a wide variety of conditions that result in the partial loss of pigmentation in an animal, causing white, pale, or patchy coloration of the skin, hair, feather, scales, or cuticles, but not the eyes. So it makes animals white. I guess we've heard of white squirrels. That's caused by lucism resulting in the partial loss of pigmentation in an animal. Lucism. And with lucism on our mind, we'll take you to South Carolina where researchers from Clemson University have found six leucistic American alligator hatchlings in South Carolina. And it's a pretty neat thing to see, a white alligator. Have you ever thought or heard of such a thing? Yes, at the Tom Yawkey Wildlife Center in Georgetown, that's halfway between Charleston and Myrtle Beach, these leucistic alligators are called oddball animals but are virtually never seen as adults because in addition to their rarity, it also causes health and survival issues. But there have been photos of these white alligators there in Georgetown County. And you will also find leucistic alligators, some in Louisiana and in the wetlands right there in south carolina so check it out good information to know and don't think that you've lost your mind or you've been drinking something wild and crazy if you run up on a white leucistic alligator while in louisiana or south carolina maybe these things will take a real big gamble and go way beyond those states how about mcdonald's mcdonald's is now offering free iphones in some locations a free iPhone for new employees amidst the worker shortage that's going on around the whole country. Yes, yeah, sign put up at a McDonald's, and I don't know where this was, 
But here's what the sign says. Now hiring free iPhone after six months employment and meet employment criteria. Maybe they want you to work 200 hours a week for six months to be able to get that free iPhone. But, yeah, the McDonald's of the world and the other restaurant chains are seeing drastic shortages of employees. And right now they're increasing wages as well. I was talking to someone from another state, another state outside of the South, on Monday. This person told me that at the McDonald's in their area, they're now paying $16 an hour, starting salary, $16. And they also are giving $500 bonuses just to start working there. I think I, I think I got that right. And this is a McDonald's. Imagine what some of the other chains that aren't maybe as well-known are doing to attract employees. It's it's tough business across the country now, right now to try, to try to get employees to actually show up and, and do a, a little work across the southeast. All right, let me tell you about what's going on in Georgia. Cicadas, that's what's going on in Georgia. And one county is urging its residents to stop calling 911 over the cicada outbreak. <laughs> Hello, 911. Shut up. Don't call me anymore. Yeah, cicadas emerging after a 17-year hibernation, and reports are coming in from Union County of alarms in the area. And Union County Fire Rescue and EMA put out in a Facebook post, more than likely these, quote, alarms are not alarms, but are the bug brood X. Brood X causing a stir, causing an alarm, if you will, in the south and in Union County, Georgia, trillions of the brood X insects have come out of the ground in Georgia all the way up to New Jersey for mating season. The half-inch bugs hum at a level so loud that it's roughly the equivalent of a lawnmower, and people are thinking they're hearing alarms, but they're actually not. In fact, a reporter for WSB-TV in Atlanta interviewed a family trying to have a picnic amid a brood X cacophony and they told the TV station, it's deafening. Whether you're in the yard or on the deck, upper or lower, you just have to scream above them. It's that loud. The cicadas are here, and at least in Union County, Georgia. Don't call 911 if you think you are hearing a alarm. It's likely Brood X alarming everybody with their loud, loud call. But they'll be gone sooner than later, so don't worry about that. I'm looking up right now where Union County, Georgia is. I know it's got to be in North Georgia, but I need to know the town. Union County is North Georgia, right there along the North Carolina border, and its town is Blairsville. Oh, okay. Blairsville, also home of, I think, Blood Mountain is where you'll find Union County, Georgia. I've only been through a portion of that very mountainous area in the state of Georgia, part of the Chattahoochee National Forest there. And it's not Blairsville to the locals. I think they call it Blairsville is how it's pronounced there in North Georgia, Union County. And uh, right now they're calling up 911, a little too eager to call up 911 about these darn cicadas on the loose. All right, we're going to have to save our South Carolina drunk texting story for hour number three, but I promise it's a fun story, and we'll share that one as long as, as long as we're able to here on Y'all Talk with a Southern Accent. 
I'll tell you what, next up on the Y'all Show, we're going to continue the fun. We've got a look at Southern Business News. Plus, later this hour, Jim Leach is going to be on Murder's a Tough Business is his new read, and he's going to be on to talk about it right here on Y'all Talk with a Southern Accent. Books big time. We've got some bestsellers we'll share with you, as well as Stacey Abrams, the Georgia Politico. She's got a brand new book that's number one on the New York Times bestsellers list, While Justice Sleeps a Novel. And we'll have a clip of her on Late Night with Seth Myers. All that this hour on the show that covers everything Southern. And I mean everything. I never picked cotton. But my mother did and my brother did and my sister did and my daddy died young. Working in the coal mine When I was just a baby Too little for a cotton sack I played in the dirt while the others worked Till they couldn't straighten up their backs And I made myself a promise When I was big enough to run That I'd never stay a single day In that Oklahoma sun And I never picked cotton but my mother did, and my brother did, and my sister did, and my daddy died. Back on the Y'all Show Wednesday edition, a look at some southern business news. U.S. new home sales fell 5.9% in April after a big gain in the month of March. Sales of new homes fell a bigger than expected 5.9% in April, a drop that analysts blamed in part on soaring home prices. That's right, prices of homes are up. The amount of homes available to purchase down across the land. It's a weird time out there, I'll tell you what. Sales dropped to a seasonally adjusted annual rate of 863000 last month. The Commerce Department reported on Tuesday that followed a sales pace of 917000 in the month of March, which was revised down from the original estimate of 1.02 million sales in March, which would have been the fastest pace since August of 2006 which was right in the middle of the housing boom at that time. The median price of a new home sold in the month of April was $372,000, up 11.4% from March. In a separate report released on Tuesday, the S&P Case-Shiller 20-City Home Price Index, it rose 13.3% in March from a year earlier, the biggest gain in more than seven years. So some home-related stories to tell you about here on the Y'all Show. Republican senators are ready to counteroffer a Biden plan for infrastructure. They're ready to counteroffer with a $1 trillion offer of their own. Senate Republicans trying to negotiate over President Joe Biden's sweeping investment plan. And I think I saw somewhere that on this infrastructure plan, only 10%, or give or take a few percentage points, Roughly 10% of it actually is for infrastructure. The other 90% gotch knows what it's for. That according to some sources. But these Republican senators are negotiating with the president to try to come up with a a much lower amount of money. As Biden has dropped his $2.3 trillion opening bid, already he's dropped it down to $1.7 trillion. And Republicans have rejected the plan to pay for the investments by raising the corporate tax rate from 21% to 28%. The West Virginia Senator Shelley Capito 
with a quote saying, we are anxious to have a bipartisan agreement. We'll find out if that happens there out of Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. General Motors now says it will support a union being formed at new battery factories as they're making a shift to electric cars and more. General Motors says it will support efforts by the UAW to organize employees at factories in Ohio and a new battery factory in Tennessee. And it is looking to do that going forward. The new battery factories, uh, factories where the employees make around $31 per hour, according to one report I saw. The two battery plants are in Lordstown, Ohio, and Spring Hill, Tennessee, south of Franklin, Tennessee. Those two factories combined employ about 2,300 workers. And UAW has a historic, historic and constructive relationship with the auto industry and in a statement said they would be well-positioned to represent the workforce if indeed they will support unionizing their new battery factory. Spring Hill was where the Saturn car was built, and I am not totally sure, but perhaps that factory has been turned into a, instead of making cars, making batteries, or somewhere in that area of Spring Hill in Murray County, Tennessee. That's a quick look at what's going on business-wise. When we come back on the Y'all Show, author Jim Leach will be here. He has written a really cool book, Murder's a Tough Business, and we'll discuss this former Tennessee Bureau of Investigations investigators' newest read. It's part of our Southern Author Spotlight. Also, later in the hour, we're going to have a clip from Stacey Abrams as she was on Late Night with Seth Myers talking about her brand-new number one bestseller, While Justice Sleeps, a novel. So two writers are going to be writing up a storm here on the Y'all Show telling you about their latest reads. And that's coming up as Y'all, hour number two, continues. Oh, yeah, taking you back to the 80s for that song from the Beverly Hills Cop 2 soundtrack. Bob Seger here on the Y'all Show. You know, Bob Seger's song, Shakedown, it's not just the theme song from Beverly Hills Cop 2. It's also the theme song for The Investigator, the Jimmy Leach Show. That airs on one of our sister stations, a friend of the program, if you will, WTJS FM 93.1. You can catch that Saturday morning at 9 a.m., Jimmy is on with us now on the Y'all Show to talk about his fifth book. It has just come out, and it is called Murder's a Tough Business. 
Jimmy, welcome back into the Y'all Show, and good to see you. Good to see you, John. Thanks so much for having me on. Congratulations on now your fifth book. Yes, sir. I appreciate it. I uh, appreciate writing, it. writing Machine. What took you so long? <laughs> I'll tell you what, it, it has taken me. My first book, I wrote an interview and interrogation. I thought, you know, I've done a million of them, been teaching it for 20 years. It'll take me no time to knock this out. Four years later, I finally finished the book. And uh, this one has been a culmination. It's been, it's been in, the, in the process for for a long, long time, mm. uh, from writing blogs on murder cases and, and this and that, and then putting them together and adding to them and stuff. Now, Jimmy Leach is no stranger to murder. He was, for a long time, a Tennessee Bureau of Investigation investigator. Right. And has worked in law enforcement how many years? Oh, well, I started in 75. Oh, that, that, that short yeah. time ago. Yeah, and so far as the murder investigations go, John, I've, I've been fortunate to have sort of a unique situation. I, I actually worked cases as an agent with the TBI and had some wonderful people to learn from. Then I managed, I became a special agent in charge of criminal investigations with the TBI and managed murder investigations, as I did at Highway Patrol CID. And then uh, Dennis Mays and I, uh, and Jerry Baston was, was at the beginning, started a training business. And so I trained people how to investigate homicides for over 20 years. And, uh, and you learn a lot in the classroom, you know, listening to other people who are working the same kind of stuff. So, so I've, uh, I've had a, I've had a, Sort of a unique experience in, in putting together information. Well, murder is something that has turned out to be one of the best sellers in terms of books and movies and TV shows. People are infatuated with murder. I don't think there's a night that goes by that some of us are not tuning in to see the crime shows on TV or movies and such like that. But your book here, this new book from Jim Leach called Murder's a Tough Business, it's not necessarily putting murder in a glamorous spotlight. Murder is an awful thing, and you write about that. That's exactly right. Uh, you know, when it gets into to television, into movies, it, it does tend to be glamorized one way or another, sometimes sometimes toward the villain. But uh, I look at it, I, I'm, if, if you enjoy watching true crime television or movies, if you look at this book, if you read this book, it will only make you enjoy those shows better because we talk about what the police actually do what they can do and what they can't do. You know, people are coming to me all the time and say, well, why didn't they do this and why didn't they do that? There are reasons. There's rules that you have to play by to go to court. And and the book goes into all of that. We look at 22 different cases, some of them in-depth and some of them not so in-depth. But each one of them has its own different issues for us to look at. And we analyze them and say uh, why they did it this way, why they did, did it another way, why they couldn't do it a certain way. And uh, I think they'll find it very interesting. And, of course, police officers, uh, I'd like for police officers to buy and look at some, some, t- some things in there that maybe you already knew and it will bring back to mind and make the investigation a little more focused. What was it that you used to determine which 22 cases of your past went into this? It, well, it, it just the ones that, that caught my eye, I guess, is the best way to say it. We've got some cases in there, where, where homicide cases, where they never found the body. And you said didn't hear of that. Can now, you charge somebody with yes, murder? Yes, yes. Oh, body? yeah, yeah. We got. I think I've got two cases in there where people were. Well, one of them was he wasn't ever convicted because he committed suicide before he went to. Uh, but you know, Scott, Scott, well, not Scott Peterson actually found that body. But it happens nowadays. And then we have some that uh, have a religious aspect to them. Okay. And then we got one, the Golden State Killer, which is the last, the last story in the book, and. Uh, 
This guy was on the loose for 40 years, actually was a police officer at one time. Mm-hmm. And the, the straw that broke the camel's back, that, that, that snapped the case for him, was one of these genealogy DNA searches. Mm. And it's, it's really amazing to look. And we go into depth with that, how they do it. And you understand, DNA is a, is a great piece of evidence, but DNA doesn't in itself make the case. Once they made DNA matches, but they had to go back and build a case to prosecute, or in his case, several cases. He killed, I forget how many now, killed and raped a whole bunch, over 100. So Jim Leach is our guest here on the Y'all Show. We're talking about his new book. It's out. It's called Murder's a Tough Business. We'll tell you how to find out how you can order it, plus how you can go to Jim Leach's website, Tennessee Underground, with more information on his career and such. And in this case, I guess, is it, is it covered in this book here, your fifth book, your first murder case? Not really. No, uh, I didn't get into that at all. My, my very first murder case was one of those that, that are, the, are what most of them are like. It was a boyfriend-girlfriend murder, you know, heat of passion, domestic violence type thing down in Grand Junction, Tennessee, right down on the Mississippi state line. And uh, in those days... That part of the country was, was extremely violent. We worked a lot of crimes. As a matter of fact, when they called me that night on my first homicide, uh, the lady at the jail started to hang up. She told me the chief deputy would be by to pick me up in a minute. I was a brand-new TBI agent down there. Hmm. And she started hanging up. And I said, whoa, Ernestine, Ernestine, what's going on? She didn't even tell me. <laughs> and her exact words were, I'll never forget this, she said, oh, it ain't nothing, Jim. Just another killing in Grand Junction. <laughs> and, and I came to find out that that murder in Hardeman and Fayette counties on the Mississippi state line just outside of Memphis, they were very violent back then. And, uh, you know, those uh, those weekend killings when, when hardworking people have a good time and sometimes emotions get out of control. And, uh, Did a know, boyfriend kill a girlfriend? Boy, Is that what boyfriend killed a girlfriend. Gun? Sure, yeah, it was a gun. Sure was. Sure was. I, I was going to ask you about that case because – being your first, does it stand out more than any of your other murder cases? Oh, no, no, no. no it you know, at, with the TBI, especially back then, in West Tennessee, in the 21, what, 21 counties, I guess, of West Tennessee, there were about five or six of us, what they call field investigators, that worked regular cases as opposed to narcotics and organized crime. TBI wasn't very big back then, maybe 50 people for the whole state, 60 maybe. Hmm. So we got called on the hard cases most of the time, out in the rural areas especially. And uh, so those are the ones that, you know, were serial killers or, or cold cases. Uh, those tend to stick out in my mind a lot more because we spent a lot more time on those cases. And they were unusual, you know, certain aspects. Jim Leach, a longtime Tennessee Bureau of Investigations investigator here on the Y'all Show. And his fifth book is out, Murders a Tough Business. How can people find this? They can, they can get it on Amazon.com. All right. It's just as simple as it gets. It's in paperback. Uh, and Kindle version both. So whether you like ebook or, or whatever you like, and you can you can uh, go to uh, see a review on it, uh, and uh, on our website, which is tugnews.com, T-U-G news.com. And uh, matter of fact, if you go there and you like the review, you can click right there and it'll send you straight to Amazon. Or you can go to, if you like Facebook for your Facebook fan, you can find us on Tennessee Underground uh, Facebook page. Yeah, Tennessee Underground with Jim Leach and Steve Bowers. Right, my partner. Yeah, a, a, a good Southern boy there. And TUGnews.com is the link again for you to go find out more of what these two guys are doing with the books and more. So you've got 22 cases here. Jim Leach's new book, and Murder's a Tough Business. And 
I mean, how are you able to access this information on these 22 cases? Do you have files of your own that well, you've been able I, to keep? Well, I do some, but I, I, I hesitate to go back to those files. Most of what you will see uh, in those cases was at one time at least public record. A lot of them I got to information. The recent cases, national cases, I got that from the media. Did you? Yeah, and like Holly Bobo case. Remember Holly Bobo oh, yeah. case? Yeah. Big national story on that one in West Tennessee. Steve and I were, were on the radio on that one almost every day during the trial with an update, and I was writing a blog about every day or every other day. So I started actually before the case started saying, okay, here's what we got, and here's what you can look for. And uh, we'll do an update every day they had testimony. So that I put that together in the end and added some things, added some analysis to it that I didn't put. Uh, but a lot of it I got got out of the media, frankly. Some of it I got out of my my memory. You'll see some of some of the uh, stories in there. I won't call names or places, uh, and that's because that that's a not, that's not a solved case. That's an ongoing case. Mm-hmm. Or in one case in particular, I didn't want to draw any more. It was it was a case that the the victim and the subject's family, who were all good people as far as I know. Uh, have gone on about their life and are over it, and I didn't want to do anything to bring it back up to their conscience. So I told a true story, true techniques, true happenings, uh, but I didn't use the right names to try to keep from hurting people's feelings. So the Holly Bobo is one of the 22? It's, it's the next to last case in there. Is it okay? Yeah, I did like, I think it's, I don't know, it's quite about 25 pages. That was there. a story that got a lot of attention, then it kind of died off because I guess they just didn't have enough evidence for a long time, and then all of a sudden it popped up. So what led that? case to be where it is now well i, th- I think it's, it's one of those cases and, and it didn't ever come out in the media and, and i'm not going to really comment uh, as they go but to actually get the ball rolling as i like to say somebody told somebody something and then they found the body and a lot of times especially if you've got several co-defendants somebody's going to talk and of course somebody did hmm. And that's when the house of cards starts falling. And, and you know, one thing I always kind of wonder about one of the other main players in that case uh, was going to be a government witness. And he ended up, uh, he, he got out on bond and he committed suicide, supposedly, somewhere in Alabama or somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I'll always kind of wonder. <laughs> that's a funny suicide, you know. The guy was going to testify in a big murder case. Showed yeah. up dead. So. Jim, I want to ask you about murders. You know, since you've kind of been in the business of murders for a few years, what's the overwhelming common denominator in murders is it drugs is it money is it both actually i I believe that it's changed okay you know you can you can look at three common and all and you mentioned you know money love and power or greed and you can almost tie the three of them together in a lot of instances now a lot of the stuff we have now we're seeing a whole lot of, of of drugs slash money and you can't separate the two very often we're seeing a lot of gang violence. Used to, the majority of our murders were just like I, I described to begin with. It was like a Friday or Saturday night deal. People knew one another, had a relationship many times. Things got out of hand and somebody got killed. Nowadays, criminals are much more mobile. You know, here in Jackson, Tennessee, if you think about it, we're sitting not only about halfway between Nashville and Memphis on I 40. We're sitting on Highway 45. That's the most direct route from Chicago to the Gulf Coast. Mm. And and 40, if you're coming in the country from the western border and going to the populist northeast, say with drugs, we're right in your way. we got a lot of traveling crime going on in the country today, which makes it a lot harder. 
Of course, we've got a lot of new technology that helps with that, too, databases and, and tests and, and what have you. Uh, but, you know, if I had to say today, most of it, I think most of our killings are going to go back to, to, to money. Money. Money, I believe so. But is it, how often do you see in today's murder climate complete strangers being murdered for no reason at all? I think most of the time, and, and this is just going from what I see, and you know I keep up with this stuff a yeah. lot because of what we do. I do. Uh, most of the time we, we got a, we've got a just a totally random killing. A lot of them are in the major cities with like a drive-by or something like that, and a, and somebody just a bullet went astray. Yeah. Remember, remember we had a thing in Chicago a few weeks back, uh, a little an eight-year-old kid, I think, and maybe a parent sitting in a drive-through yeah. at McDonald's or somewhere. And uh, some guys, and I always figure they're gangbangers. I think it probably were pulled up, and they they went to the right car. That's they they went directly to that car and shot it up, killed an eight year old kid, wounded the father. And uh, the last I heard, they were saying they thought they just got the wrong car. Hmm. Uh, so they didn't really know those people. It sounds like, and uh, so you have that. But most of the time, there's some kind of relationship or connection between people. Of course, you get into serial killers and things like that. That's a different ball game. Sometimes there is, and sometimes there's not. Well, one thing you can find here with Jim's new book is a great read. Is it tough for you to write about this subject? No, not not really. Uh, it's t- the 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 technical part, the grammar, and 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 uh, well, and that can be tough too. I was just talking yeah. about reliving the gruesome scenes no, of murder crimes. No, not re- there. Are, there are a couple that I think will always stay with me. You. You know, you get tough into that a lot. A lot of times, you know, I think I was lucky. This book's called "Murders: A Tough Business." It's about the toughest business there is. Mm. Uh, but I don't think you ever get used to the children, the young people, and and arsons always bothered me a lot. Arsons were terrible crimes. Uh, Are those considered murders? Well, they can be. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, can be. A lot of times, you'll see an arson used to cover up a crime, and they're going to have a. Uh, I was watching this morning Mark Furman, who was. Uh, Mm-hmm. In the O.J. Simpson thing, he's got his own show now, and they're doing one this weekend on, on one of the Fox Nation uh, Fox shows, and they end, it involves rapes and kidnappings and all this. But they end up it's a I think a mother and two of her children. Uh, the, the culmination of their crime is when they poured gas on top of them and burnt them up in the in the house, and they were still alive. I think when they did this. So. What's the typical way an arson death works? The fire investigator comes in and. And does he call someone like you and well, say, we got a body? Usually what you'll have most of the time is you, you'll have arson investigators, bomb and arson experts. Mm-hmm. And this is a specialized crime, man. Those guys, guys and girls, you know, I use guys generically when I'm talking about police. Uh, they're slick, man. That, that's that's complicated crime. Uh, but they will be they will be police officers trained as arson experts. You said one named Johnny Hayes that did all our teaching for us. He was fantastic. But, but I could be standing next to Johnny or Randy Lipford or Bob Pollard, one of those guys specializing in that stuff, and they would tell me. They'd say, see, right over there is where the fire started, and it went here, and it climbed up this wall, and, <laughs> you know, and they were showing it to me, and I still couldn't see it, but uh, but they could. And, of course, you got tests you can use to see what kind of accelerant there was used and all this. But, but arson is a hard crime to prove, very hard crime to prove. Rough business, uh, a tough business, as you write here in your book, Murder is a Tough Business. Jim Leach, again, 22 murders he chronicles here in this fifth book, and this former TBI investigator, 
on with us here on the Y'all Show. His website, TUGnews.com, Tennessee Underground with Jim Leach and Steve Bowers. And you can go to Amazon and pick up this fifth read of his Murders, a Tough Business. Jim, thank you very much for coming on, being a friend of the show. And I guess it's off and going with the sixth book. What is that oh, going yeah, to going. Going be about? Well, don't know. I've got, I've got to... I've got three actually started. I don't know which one I'll finish for. <laughs> one of them is doing an audio book of, uh, on, on, on my show yeah. with, with Brad McCoy and I on there talking about interviewing. And every now and then we just do a whole show on interviewing. So we tape those off, and I'm gonna, we're going to make an audio book out of that. As we mentioned, that Jim Leach has this week, weekly show. You can catch it Saturday mornings on WTJS 93.1. What's the difference between interviewing someone for a radio show versus a murder investigation? <laughs> Quite a bit. Is it really? <laughs> yeah, quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah, this is fun. You know, this uh, is fun. And some of the investigations, that's another thing. In the book, there are two or three little things that I, I, I talk about in there that were kind of funny, actually, kind of humorous. Uh, you know, even, even though it's uh, it's terrible and it's tragic, you know, you you still, some there's humor in it sometimes. All right. Well, we try to have a humorous, fun interview here, not quite like a murder investigation on the Y'all Show. Jim Leach, again, thank you for coming by and telling us about your brand new book that people can check out, Murder's a Tough Business. We appreciate you, and good luck with your future books, Thank sir. you very much, John. Enjoy being here. All right. More of the Y'all Show will be coming up right after this. Stay tuned to the show that covers everything Southern, including murder. All right, going to wrap up Hour 2 here, talking more about books. Thanks again to Jim Leach for coming on in the previous segment in his new book, Murder's a Tough Business. If you take a look at the current New York Times bestseller list, there are definitely some Southern connections right there if you want to check out a good book for the Memorial Day weekend. I'm going to tell you about the number one book currently on the New York Times bestsellers list in a second. But number two is a Southern fella. John Grisham, three weeks on the chart now for Suli. That is his latest book. Laura Dave is out with a new book called The Last Thing He Told Me. Jennifer Weiner and That Summer is new this week. It checks in at number four. And number five on the New York Times bestsellers combined print and ebook fiction category, Emily Henry and People We Meet on Vacation. In the nonfiction category of the New York Times bestsellers, Bill O'Reilly's newest book, Killing the Mob. He wrote that with Martin Dugard, the 10th book in the conservative commentator's Killing series. Looks at organized crime in the U.S. during the 20th century. Bill O'Reilly. Seth Rogen is new this week, the popular actor and more. And he has a book called Yearbook, a collection of personal essays by Rogen, who is a not only a actor but a writer, producer, director, entrepreneur, and philanthropist. Seth Rogen and Yearbook out this week. Billie Eilish, you've heard of her. She has a new book, a memoir, self-titled, number three on the New York Times nonfiction category this week. Michael Lewis is back with a new book, The Premonition, stories of skeptics who went against the official response by the Trump administration in the outbreak of COVID-19. That was recently this book profiled on 60 Minutes. And number five on the New York Times nonfiction category this week is Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey's What Happened to You? Now, back to the number one book out this week, brand new 
While Justice Sleeps, a novel from Stacey Abrams. Yes, the former Georgia House of Representatives member who tried to be governor and got beat, then claimed voter suppression and used that battle cry all the way to helping President Joe Biden win by about 12,000 votes in Georgia and getting two Democratic senators from that state to be elected. Now Stacey Abrams, who before becoming a politician was a romance novelist, and now she's got the number one New York Times bestseller with When Justice Sleeps, a novel. It just came out, and as I said, this is a novel, so it's not exactly nonfiction writing Stacey Abrams is doing, but some high praise coming in as it's from the celebrated national leader and best-selling author Stacey Abrams, a gripping, complexly plotted thriller set within the halls of the U.S. Supreme Court. While Justice Sleeps, a novel, Stacey Abrams, she was just on the Seth Meyers Late Night Show on NBC. And so we're going to play a clip from this now on the Y'all Show. where She talks about While Justice Sleeps and its Supreme Court setting with Seth. And let's go in and hear them. And, of course, she's going to start talking, and he's going to start talking about voter suppression, which actually, if you go back to the 2020 election, presidential election, that is, there were more black voters in the 2020 election than before i don't know why she's made a fortune off of this whole concept but yeah that's what she's known for but she's also evidently known for writing pretty good books and her latest book is number one on the new york times bestseller list here is a clip from late night with seth myers your book is called while justice sleeps last time you were here it was right before the runoffs in georgia uh both the candidates you were supporting one and we talked about you sleeping and I'm just wondering if you managed to take a celebratory nap at the end of those runoff elections. I did indeed, uh, but I woke up to voter suppression coming back in force, so I may not do another nap for a while. You are a very busy person, and uh, while we uh, greatly appreciate your efforts in trying to stop the tide of voter suppression laws that are obviously a huge problem right now, you also have time uh, to write books. This is very exciting because this is not your first novel, but it is your first novel with your actual name on it. You've written under a pen name before. I'm wondering, obviously you knew you were the author of those books. Was it different writing a book knowing that everyone who picked it up would know it was written by the Stacey Abrams? No, I think what was different was knowing people might care. Uh, when I wrote the first eight novels, Selena Montgomery was much more exciting than Stacey Abrams. And so I'm glad that people will actually pick up a book because my name is on it instead of despite my name being on it. This is an idea that you came up with 10 years ago and and publishers Mm -hmm. passed on it then. What was it? Did the times change? Did the circumstances change? Were people just more excited that you wanted to put your name on a book? What changed that made this book uh, a book for today? When I first proposed the book and had written it, I had a corrupt president who was involved in international intrigue and a swing justice on the Supreme Court who may decide the fate of the world. And that was dismissed as being too absurdist and not quite contemporary enough. So, you know, we had some intervening activities between 2008 and 2020. And so the book, the book suddenly seemed relevant. All right. That was Stacey Abrams being interviewed by Seth Myers on his late night show. Don't you kind of long for the days when those late night talk show hosts weren't so darn political and definitely, I think in every case, it looks like liberal and liberal leaning. 
That sure seems to be the case when I tune in, and maybe that's why I don't tune in. All right, that wraps up our book report here in the second hour. A book out right now, number one, from Stacey Abrams, While Justice Sleeps, a novel. Number one on the New York Times bestsellers list. Great job there, Abrams. I can't call her Governor Abrams. She didn't win that. I don't, I don't think she won. <laughs> We've got a whole other hour of the Y'all Show coming up. Hey, it's going to be the culmination of a great Wednesday show. You don't want to miss out on the fun, including in the fun in Hour 3. Will the color of your car make it difficult when it comes time to sell it? All that is right here. we got to look at some sports news after this break on Y'all Talk with a Southern Accent. Stay where y'all are. And we're back on Y'all Talk with a Southern Accent. Go Tigers, go as we start this third hour of Talking About the South with John Rawl. Oh man, it's good to be back with you here for the last little get-together before we say goodbye for this Wednesday edition. And we'll start out this hour talking a little Southern College sports, a little Southern College basketball to report here. And in hour one today on the Y'all Show, we had Jonathan Leifheit on to talk about ACC information, including ACC basketball. And in that report, we talked about the transfer portal for college basketball and how that's affecting that sport. And we, we discussed ACC comings and goings for the transfer portal. What about other colleges and how they're being affected by the transfer portal right now in college basketball? And that had me thinking, what about Penny? What's going on with the Memphis Tigers in the American Conference? So let's tell you about the departures and arrivals, not at the Memphis International Airport, but for the Memphis Tigers soaring into the postseason. Memphis played for the NIT championship here in this last postseason. The Tigers lose Boogie Ellis, DJ Jeffries, and Damian Ball, among other players, leaving the program. Now, they are expecting to have Landers Nolly II back, who averaged 13 points per game in this past season. Also, Alex Lomax is expected to return with six points a game. But who's coming there to the Highland 100 gang? Who's going to help out the blue and gray of Memphis? They've got some good recruits coming in to the Bluff City. Jonathan Lawson, the number 61 basketball recruit in the country, is going to be a Memphis Tiger. Josh Manat is the 68th best recruit in the country. He is Memphis-bound. Also, a three-star recruit, John Camden. Now, they also are taking advantage of some transfers in thanks to the portal. Earl Timberlake, who played for the Miami Hurricanes, averaging just under 10 points per game, will be suiting up in the Memphis blue and gray. And sometimes, like they had in the Memphis, in, in the NIT They'll be sitting up in the Memphis State blue and gray uniforms, and I love that. I'm a big fan of Memphis State as opposed to Memphis. I thought when Memphis was Memphis State, they were, frankly, a lot better. <laughs> and it connects that school to the entire state of Tennessee, which 
Tennessee is is a pretty good state. Memphis, as far as a city, I would say a lot of people would say that's debatable. But the state, I think, is far better than the city. And they used to be proud of the state of Tennessee, and it's a state school there at the University of Memphis, in case you aren't familiar. A lot of these schools named after cities are technically private schools, like the University of Miami. And Tulsa, another American American Conference member, is a private school. But Memphis is a state of Tennessee school. Also coming in to the Memphis Tigers, or Memphis State Tigers, if you will, the Chandler Lawson, the Chandler Lawson. Averaging just under five points per game for the Oregon Ducks, and he's moving away from the West Coast and now to the east bank of the Mississippi River to be a Tiger at the U of M. So that's what's going on with Memphis out of the American Conference. As far as another team that was fantastic last year and did a wonderful job in the postseason, nearly – did they get the, they got to the Final Four. Houston, that's right. i, I got to remember what Kelvin Sampson's team did. They didn't win the big one. The other Texas team won the national championship, the Baylor Bears. But Houston and Coach Sampson losing some great players from last year. Quentin Grimes with 18 points per game. He's out. So also is Dejon Giroux with almost 11 points per game. But here is who's coming in to the program. They're getting a guy from another school in Texas to be a Cougar in the forthcoming season. Kyler Edwards. Averaged 10.1 points per game for the Red Raiders of Texas Tech after Coach Beard left Lubbock for the bright lights of Austin. Kyler Edwards says, I'm going to take my talent to H-Town, and now he'll be a Cougar. Also in for the Cougars in the new year is Taze Moore, who averaged 12.2 points per game at Bakersfield. Now, I'm not familiar with Bakersfield. Have they have they changed the name of one of the schools in California, and I'm, I'm going to look this up real quick because here on the Y'all Show we aim Cal State Bakersfield. Okay, they just shortened it up. I've heard of Cal State, the the Road one, Road Runners, by the way, out of the Big West Conference. How about that nickname, Road Runners? Road Runners need to take on the South Dakota State Jackrabbits sometime. That'll be a fun matchup. But yeah, Taze Moore coming in out of Cal State Bakersfield to Houston. They also have a couple of good recruits from high school coming in. Three-star Robbie Armbrester, as well as Javier Francis, another three-star recruit into Coach Sampson's Houston Cougar team out of the American Conference. And then let me also tell you about a team that's done really well considering where this program has been, SMU. The Mustangs, they lose Tyson Jolly, also lose Darius McNeil, but they've got transfers coming in. One from the national champion Baylor Bears, Tristan Clark who averaged four points per game at BU. And another guy coming in from another school, he averaged 16.5 points per game in Houston for the, not Cougars, but the Texas Southern Tigers? Is Texas Southern? Michael Strahan University, are they the Tigers? Yeah, I think I'm right on that. Yeah, Tigers, okay. The old memory sometimes still amazes me. Uh, TSU, Texas Southern University, not to be confused with Tennessee State. Also, Tigers. Those guys play, of course, in Music City, USA, Nashville, Tennessee. Also coming in for the SMU Mustangs, a transfer from Sam Houston State down the road in Huntsville, Zach Nuttall, who averaged almost 20 points per game for 
the Bearcats out of the Southland Conference. So that again, some Atlantic, or rather some the American, not Atlantic, the American Athletic Association, the AAC basketball newcomers for the upcoming basketball season. Now the Big 12, let's keep it in that part of the South here. The Big 12 revenue distribution, a little lower than the rest of the conferences. Each school in the Big 12 is going to get $34.5 million for the 2020-2021 fiscal year, and that is actually about $3 million less than what they had the previous year. They got $37.7 million per school before the COVID-19 pandemic. Commissioner Bob Bowlesby announcing Tuesday at the end of the two two days of league board meetings held virtually that overall revenue for the Big 12, about $50 million short of what it had been expected before COVID-19. A little bit of a tightening the belt going on in the Big 12 conference. Now to the NFL, Deshaun Watson. The former Clemson quarterback now at the NFL franchise in Houston, Texas. He is not scheduled to be deposed in a case against him until February of 2022. 22 women are suing the Houston Texans quarterback for alleged sexual assault, and he would be and would be deposed before Deshaun Watson, but again, not scheduled until after the 2021-2022 NFL season is over with in early February. This announced on Tuesday by Rusty Harden, Deshaun Watson's attorney, and he can't be deposed, according to the docket for the case, before February 22nd of next year. And Rusty Harden reiterated that Watson is not currently in settlement discussions with the women suing him, as Watson maintains he wants any settlement amounts to be public, although the two sides could mediate in confidentiality, which is the customary thing to do. Harden also said he hasn't had any correspondence with the Texans and believe Watson hasn't either, though Deshaun Watson's agent could handle such matters if necessary. Rusty Harden earlier this month suggested that the man representing the 22 women attorney, Tony Busby, who have filed civil lawsuits against Watson, and he alleged or suggested that there's been an attempt to settle the cases on several occasions. Now, Tony Busby later denied that claim in an Instagram post. Just where you want to go litigate this case is on Instagram, right? Deshaun Watson currently not in OTAs for the Texans, and a source said the Texans loosely expect Deshaun Watson to follow through on his trade desires by missing minicamp, too. That's what they think. I mean, Deshaun wants out of Houston, and why not let him go? This is one big mess, and the likelihood of him even playing in 2021 seems pretty low in my opinion and the chances of him having any kind of NFL career is pretty high now if they settle all this and it doesn't become too public and there's no criminal case against Deshaun Watson the guy has a chance to get back and be a pretty big player in the NFL but there was a time this looks like it could have been and and may still be a criminal case and Deshaun Watson's days as an NFL quarterback could be over with. This is a a really intriguing case that really has not been covered, in my opinion, quite as much as you would expect for an NFL star. Deshaun Watson is one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. This guy was was and should have been the Heisman Trophy winner. He was a finalist, but he led Clemson to a national championship. He was – 
a good player. He was, a, I think, a good student, a good guy. There's really nothing negative said about Deshaun Watson until this case, until these cases, 22 women, again, suing him for alleged sexual assault. Deshaun Watson, though, is innocent until proven guilty. We will find out what goes on. Now to more NFL news. The league saying fans can attend training camps in the coming months as teams make their way to camp before the 2021 regular season begin. The fans will be permitted to host. The teams will be able to host fans at training camp subject to state and local guidelines after keeping the doors closed last year because of the pandemic. All but two teams have now received approval from state and local governments to open their stadiums at full capacity when games resume. Again, let me say that again. All but two NFL teams have now received approval from their state and local governments to be at 100%. That's hard to imagine that we've already gotten that far based on where we have been and also knowing how in a lot of these states, mostly outside of the South, these cities and these states are run by what Clay Travis calls Corona Bros, <laughs> people who've gone above and beyond to shut everything down. And now all of a sudden, in these, I'll just call them liberal cities of the world, of the country, all but two say they're going to be at 100%. That includes New York. I guess it's technically New Jersey there where the big stadium is there for the Giants and Jets, but... It looks like Indianapolis and Denver are the two locations where local and state officials have not given the green light to be at 100%. Something tells me Indianapolis is going to be at 100%. I don't know what the holdup there is. But, yeah, you've got training camps opening July 27th for 29 of the 32 teams. Now, the Cowboys, Steelers, and Buccaneers are going to be allowed to open their camps earlier because they're participating in the Hall of Fame preseason game or the September night regular season kickoff game, or both in Dallas's case. So it looks like that first preseason game, the Hall of Fame game in Canton, must be between the Steelers and Cowboys. Because I know that the Cowboys are playing the Buccaneers in that opening Thursday night game when the season starts. So unofficially, I will announce that the Cowboys-Steelers will be your first preseason game then the Cowboys and the Buccaneers, I will be able to officially tell you that's going to be your first regular season game of the 2021 football season. And we're all excited. The return of normalcy and 100% crowds. And we're seeing more and more fans at games in all the sports. I was tuning in on Tuesday and saw some of the college baseball tournaments going on Tuesday. Remember, in some cases, this was three and four days before the championship of the respective conference was even held, and we saw, at least in the SEC, some of those games had more than, it looked like, more than 50% capacity of fans when it's 100 degrees outside, and it's on a Tuesday, for goodness sake. And so, way to go, fans of the SEC, for making your way to places like Hoover. Way to go for fans of the other conferences, like the ACC, having their tournament right now in Charlotte. you got other conferences more into the weekend when these things get up and going. For example, the OVC with their four top seeds in Jackson, Tennessee at the ballpark at Jackson for the OVC tournament. 
for a couple of days here this weekend. And fans are welcome. Fans are encouraged. And what a statement to see so many people showing up. And it's hot out there right now. That's a story I actually have not covered. I need to look this up in the break and tell you about the heat wave that is working its way across the south here this week. A little scary since we've had very cold temperatures in the last two months in some portions of the southeast. Now we've got nearly 100-degree temps in some portions of the southeast this week working our way into Memorial Day, and then we're working our way, frankly, into the start of the summer. And for many of us, we cannot wait. On the Major League Diamond on this Wednesday, Orioles and Twins get together in an early game. Cardinals and White Sox at guaranteed rate field with an early start, 210 Eastern, 110 Chicago South Sider time. Mariners and Athletics with an early game. Rangers-Angels with a mid-afternoon game. Cubs and Pirates will be alongside the Monongahela with a matchup this evening. The Phillies and Marlins get together in South Florida. Reds will be in the nation's capital to take on the Nats. Blue Jays and the Pinstripers from New York at Yankee Stadium on this Wednesday evening. Braves back in their hometown of Boston. Braves and Red Sox. That is from Fenway on this Wednesday. Indians and Tigers from Comerica. The Rockies and Mets from Shea Stadium in New York as they'll have that matchup there. I'm sorry, not Shea. I'm I'm getting old school on you. From City Field in Queens. I don't think Shea exists anymore. Rest in peace, Shea Stadium. Royals and Rays from Tropicana. Dodgers, Astros, Padres, Brewers are your matchup there in Milwaukee this evening. And Giants, D-backs from Chase Field in Phoenix, Arizona. That's what's happening Major League Baseball-wise. We'll call time out here on y'all when we come after this break. We'll come right back, and we'll discuss cars and their color. And is that going to make it tough for you when you get ready to sell your car, the color of your car, your beautiful Beamer out there? Is its color going to be a detriment for you? We'll let you know about that. Plus, we've got some headlines from the news world that we'll pass along before this third hour of Talk with a Southern Accent is up. Stay tuned. like to me you're feeling kind of crowded you're not looking for anything permanent here so my rodeo's packed and it's in goodbye gear so i shot down to the longhorn diner her sister works there and she'd know where to find her she said you did not hear this from me All I'll say is mama's got that place out in Monterey Oh, how fast can I go? Gotta catch that little red rodeo She drove off with my heart I've gotta let her know Meet the girl in that little red rodeo Texas plates, candy apple red rodeo Oh, have y'all been in a ride in a red rodeo lately? Don't see too many of those things here these days because frankly Zuzu, which made those don't make cars anymore in america not at least passenger cars and back in the 90s man that was a hot 
ticket there, your Isuzu Rodeos. Colin Ray singing that great song. And speaking of red cars and cars in general and colors in general, there's an article out from Instamotor.com how color affects your car's selling price. As color can affect a vehicle's resale price both negatively and positively, the general rule of thumb when you buy a new car that you plan to sell is in the future. So picking a color neutral just might be the way to go. So we have, according to Axalta Coating Systems, I guess they make paint for cars, global automotive color popularity. And according to this, 18% of cars sold well, let me start out with a big number. I, I guess I missed the big one because it's so big it, it didn't stand out here in the article. 35% of cars sold are either either of these two shades of white. Solid white, solid white cars are 24% of cars sold, and pearl white is 11%. So white cars are 35% of all cars sold. Black cars are 18%. Some cars have solid black and some have a a very, very light shade of black, if you will. But together, black and white, if you add those up, that's 53% of all cars sold in the country are black or white. Not gray. I haven't even got to gray or silver yet. But yeah. Those are your two most popular colors, white and then black. Likely not a big surprise there. Your next color choice from Axalta is silver. Silver car, and I'm a silver car owner myself. 13% is the popularity of silver cars for your choice of automobile color. 13% silver, 10% gray. So, If you add that up, 35 plus 18 is 53, plus 13 is 66, plus another 10, roughly 76% of all cars sold, the color of them are white, black, or some shade of gray or silver. That's a lot. Three-fourths of cars are, 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 are bland. I'll just say it. They're fairly bland in their color choice and i'm in that category i'm in the 75 percent. i am a bland person i have never owned the most popular color car a white car i don't see myself as a white car owner i'm sure people who have them have them for a reason maybe they don't want to stand out maybe they don't have to wash the car as much i don't know but white cars are the most popular car choice below the whites and the blacks and the silvers and the grays, the next most popular color choice for a car. Y'all want to take a gamble of what that might be? It's going to be just like Colin Ray was singing about. Red. Red is 7% of car sales, the color of the car. 6% blue. Also tied for that same number of 6% is sort of a yellow gold or or a brown, rather more of a brown beige category. And that is 6% of the car sold, this brown beige, kind of a khaki color car. And I've seen some pretty cool-looking khaki-looking colors out there for cars. Then you've got what they call others, I guess something that's a little bit of everything, maybe a rainbow car is 2% of cars sold. 2% is also the yellow-gold combination. 
How many of y'all have yellow cars? You want to look like a school bus going down the road? Yeah, that's also there. And then the last choice, the least amount of the cars sold in the country were this color or some combination of this color. 1% of cars sold, according to Axalta, green cars. I don't know if I've ever even been in a green car. I'm sure I have. Um, But that is a breakdown, again, of the color popularity of cars sold. Now, what about the resale value? Blue SUVs and compact crossovers are on the upswing in the country, according to this Axalta study. That means if you're looking to buy something bigger and sell it down the road, blue could be a great bet. Because, again, with blue, and I told you, blue is only 6% of the color choices of cars these days. A blue SUV will be standing out from the pack and could help you definitely sell it. Now, colors of your car also, according to this instamotor.com article, can help deter theft. I bet you if you've got a green car out there right now in the parking lot, it might not be so likely to get broken into or even stolen. I don't think the police are going to have to look too hard when you report, I got my green pickup truck stolen. Can y'all help me? I don't think there's going to be too many green pickup trucks running down the highways in your town, and the cops have to spend all day looking for it. It ought to stand out pretty good. So maybe that's a reason to get you a green car or get you a bright orange car, if you will, something that will deter theft, according to this article. And Toyota makes a Habanera color, Japanese, a good-looking car, the Japanese Toyota. And then Chevrolet has a jalapeno color car that (laughs) – is, is pretty unusual in its look. There's also choices that BMW makes. I think they've got a Valencia orange color on the Beamer if you're looking into the BMWs for a future car. But that color, having in this case one that really stands out, is a good thing when it comes to a car. And, and, and if it stands out and you've got a unique enough model car, it will increase your value going forward. But the most popular car colors, we just told you about that, but these car colors factoring in to the selling price, you can go to the website instamotor.com and learn more about this article, how color affects your car's selling price. But as I just told you, according to Exalta Coding Systems, that's A-X-A-L-T-A, the most popular car choices in the country, 75% are either white, black, or some shade of gray or silver. We live in a pretty boring world, don't you think? Yeah, maybe so. But, but boy, it looks nice. And who wouldn't turn down a car no matter what color if it runs good and you can get it at the right price? <laughs> Congratulations, all you car owners and pickup truck owners of the world. I think we sell more pickup trucks in the South than cars these days. When we come back on the Y'all Show, we're going to switch over from talking about wheels to the headlines of the South, including the passage of John Warner, the longtime U.S. Senator from the Commonwealth of Virginia. That's up next on Y'all Talk with a Southern Accent.
All right, Clock on the Wall says we're running out of time here, so let's get into some happenings in the news world across the southeast today. And this is a big story across the whole world, frankly, a media big story. Amazon is buying MGM in a mega media deal. This just coming out here on this Wednesday. Amazon investing even more heavily and growing its position in the entertainment world. The company announcing today that it made a deal to acquire MGM, the home of James Bond and one of the most iconic movie studios in all of Hollywood. This is a deal reportedly valued at $8.45 billion. And if it is going to be completed, it will give Amazon an extensive library of film and TV shows that it can use to offer to its prime video content options. MGM has a catalog with more than 4,000 films, 17,000 TV shows. The real financial value, according to Mike Hopkins, who heads Prime Video and Amazon Studios, the real financial value behind this deal is the treasure trove of intellectual property in the deep catalog that we plan to reimagine and develop together with MGM's talented team. According to Hopkins, it's very exciting and providing many opportunities for high-quality storytelling. You reckon they're going to tell it the way it was told in the past? Or are they going to go in there with Amazon and their uh, 21st century lens and completely change up things? Could be, could be. The two companies said the completion of the deal is subject to regulatory approvals and other customary closing conditions. Now, Amazon Prime Video, which also features original and award-winning shows like The Marvelous Mrs. Meisel, is tied to Amazon's immensely popular Prime program, which offers faster delivery and has more than 200 million paid subscribers. And that makes it a big competitor with people like Netflix. Netflix with 208 million subscribers right now. But right now, today, the big news story around the world is Amazon flexing its muscles and buying MGM in a mega media deal reported to be $8.45 billion. Woo! If we could just have that kind of money. I don't know if I'd want the money or just the fact that you could have that many movies you could watch for the rest of your life. I think, as I just mentioned, with all the catalog that MGM's got, 4,000 movies and 17,000, not episodes, but 17,000 TV shows. I, I guess I really don't know how they break. It could be actual episodes, but it's listed as 17,000 TV shows MGM has produced through the years. And that staggering number of films, you wouldn't get bored. It, you, you would definitely have a, a pretty good selection of things to choose from, including James Bond movies, which are always wonderful. A news story breaking on this Wednesday, a five-term U.S. Senator from Virginia, John Warner, a Republican from the Commonwealth, he has died at age 94 as he died at his Alexandria home. This World War II and Korea War veteran served in the late 1970s when he was first elected as the Virginia U.S. Senator, serving until he retired in 2009, Mark Warner ended up being elected to John Warner's seat. And Warner to Warner, I just figured that out. No relation, by the way, between Mark, the former Virginia governor, and John Warner, who at one time 
was the U.S. Secretary of the Navy. He was the 61st U.S. Navy Secretary serving in the Nixon administration from 72 to 74, and he died on Tuesday. John Warner. Did you realize John Warner had three marriages? Married to Catherine Catherine Mellon, married her in 57, divorced in 73. I'm going to skip his second wife, his most recent wife, of which he was married until his death Tuesday, was to a lady named Jeanne Vander Mide. But for six years, this guy who ended up being a senator, he, he married this lady when he was not a senator. I guess he had just finished serving as the Navy secretary. John Warner of Virginia was married to Dame Elizabeth Roseman Taylor. He was married to actress Elizabeth Taylor for six years. John Warner. Good on you there, Senator, and uh, rest in peace. You and Elizabeth reunited now in the everlasting. But what a what a what a life. And again, a World War II guy. He went in to the Navy as an enlisted guy in nineteen forty five after he'd gone to college at William and Mary. I'm sorry, he went to Washington and Lee. My apologies there, Washington and Lee. I, I confused you with William and Mary. I guess I'm not the only one that's ever done that. William and Mary in Williamsburg and Washington and Lee in Lexington, Virginia, right by VMI. But he went to Washington and Lee, got his undergrad. Then he went to law school at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville in a distinguished career. Many, many years served in Washington, D.C. And kind of like Elizabeth Taylor, his second wife, he could have been an actor. I don't know if he ever portrayed an, uh, anybody in a movie or TV show, but he had the look. John Warner, five-term U.S. Senator from Virginia, has died at the age of 94. Now to Georgia and one county there. Blairsville is where we'll go in Union County, where Blairsville is the county seat. They're telling people to stop calling 911 because people are hearing alarms go off. No, according to the Union County, Georgia 911 office, that ain't alarms going off there near Blairsville. That is the eruption of cicadas as the 17-year hibernation of Brood X is now upon us in portions of the South. And now in Union County, Georgia, residents are being asked to stop calling 911 over this loudest lawnmower cicada noise. Reports coming in that it sounds like alarms. And according to a post on their Facebook page, more than likely these, quote, alarms are not alarms, but all but the bug Brood X Trillions of winged brood X insects have come out of the ground in states like Georgia all the way up to New York and New Jersey in the last couple of days. It's mating season for brood X cicadas. The half-inch bugs hum at a level so loud that it's roughly the equivalent of a lawnmower, according to some experts. Cicadas feed on sap, but don't sting or bite, according to Facebook. Have you seen one? Have you had one in your neighborhood? Are you scared of them? Do you need to wear ear protection because they're so darn loud? You, you might just have to. But don't call 911 is the subject of the day. And lastly, in our look at news and headlines and craziness around the southeast to South Carolina, we go. And instead of drunk dialing, this fella drunk texted this last few days. And this fella 
decided to get the number for the South Carolina Aquarium in Charleston. And now the aquarium shared a screenshot of the message they received from this drunk texter. And, yeah, the man was definitely inebriated, but he was very curious. And, no, it was not me. Don't even think about it. So let me share with you a few of the questions this drunk man in Charleston had to ask while under the influence. And instead of harassing people who were innocent, he ends up harassing the South Carolina Aquarium, which I've been to. It's a great place right there on the Charleston Harbor. The Technically, the river is the Cooper River, just past the big bridge, the Ravenel Bridge. You can see it, and they're building the International, I think it's called the International African American Museum, I think is what it's called, and it's it's going to be opening soon if it's not already open. But right there in that same area, you'll find the South Carolina Aquarium. And this guy, here's what he texted. I'm currently at the corner of Market and Meeting. That's in downtown Charleston. What would I have seen around me 10,000 years ago before the area was settled by humans? Also, what, when was the area first settled? Pretty good question coming in. This at 1030 at night, by the way. The answer, I mean, he asked a bunch of questions. Actually, I should go ahead and keep asking keep sharing with you the questions this guy's asking in the middle of the night while under the influence. Another question coming in. On what subjects do marine biologists disagree? Here's the next question. There must be things generally agreed upon, but what theories are currently being debated? Also, why do seahorses grab anything they can with their prehensile tail? Why should I only eat oysters in the months that contain the letter R? All questions coming into the South Carolina Aquarium's Twitter account from this drunk man, not on a plane, but walking the streets of Charleston. And they responded. They they took the time to respond to this guy, and they did a good job. They even said, thank you for all of your questions. And they wrote, 10,000 years ago, South Carolina would have seen the end of the Ice Age. And they went on to keep answering questions. The America, the the educator there at the aquarium responded thoughtfully to each question, providing the man with a wealth of information, and likely did not respond back to this guy while under the influence themselves. So next time you are under the influence and walk in the streets of Charleston, you actually might be able to get answers from the South Carolina Aquarium, which, by the way, on social media, at SC Aquarium. And you can... I mean, that's just how hospitable they are in South Carolina. They'll answer drunk people's pretty bizarre questions coming in in the middle of the night. Good on you, SC Aquarium. (laughs) I I, I got questions that I'd be asking, too, if I were under the influence, but it wouldn't be that scientific. I'd be like, how did y'all get some of them fish in that aquarium? Because those are some big old fish, including sharks. I think they even have a whale, I think, in there. It's a well of a time, I know that, at the South Carolina Aquarium. We'll wrap up the show right after this on Talk with a Southern Accent. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you. We have come to the end of this Wednesday show all about the Southeast. 
It's been a pleasure to be with you. I'm John Rawl, inviting you to tune in on the Thursday Y'all Show. We're going to have a special guest. Get your hunger pains healed. Thanks to Moe's Original Barbecue, we'll be spotlighting this Alabama-based barbecue chain. 52 locations they've got, and a representative of that, Hunter Wiltfield, will be on with us in hour number three on the Thursday Y'all Show. Also in hour one, Joe Holloway will be on to talk SEC sports and more. All this on the show covering everything Southern. This is Y'all. Have a good rest of your Wednesday. Wednesday.